Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Thursday, November 2nd, 2017, uh, City of Sacramento Planning Design Commission meeting. Uh, please silence all electronic devices. Uh, we'll get started with the roll call. Commissioner Ogilvie? Here. E? Here. Juan Connolly? Here. Rogers? Here. Buckybaum? Here. Farrell? Here. Lindsay? Here. Kaufman? Here. Coville? Here. LaFosso? Here. Bodipo Memba? Here. Vice Chair Lucian? Chair Burke? Here. You have a quorum. Thank you. We'll go to item number two, approval of the minutes of October 26, 2017. I do want to note that um, item six has been corrected. Um, that was an aye vote by Commissioner Wong Connolly on the, oh, sorry, no vote on the minutes for item number six. Uh, a motion from Commissioner Wong Connolly. Do we have a second? From Commissioner Farrell. We'll go with a roll call vote. Commissioner Bodipo Memba? Abstain. LaFosso? Aye. Coville? Aye. Hoffman? Abstain. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Buckybaum? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. E? Aye. Ogilvie? Abstain. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. We'll go to item number two, the director's report. Director Cosgrove? I have no items for the director's report this evening. Thank you, Director Cosgrove. We'll go to item number three, um, an ordinance amending section 5.138038, uh, pretty much dealing with tobacco retailers. Any commissioners need to recuse themselves, excuse? Seeing none, uh, Ms. Patterson. Chair Burke and members of the commission. The city of Sacramento has regulated tobacco sales for over a decade. The 2004 tobacco retailer regulations found in Title V, the Business Permit um, Revenue Division of the City Code, was put in place by the City Council to keep, help keep tobacco out of the possession of minors. A tobacco retailer license is required to sell tobacco in the city, and the license is renewed yearly. While it is a revenue permit, the permits are actually um, issued by the Code Enforcement Division of the Community Development Department. As part of the regulation, visits and sting operations on the retailers occur to make sure they are complying with provisions of their permits, and those are conducted by our code staff. In 2012, the City Council amended Title 17 of the City Code to add a conditional use permit for certain retailers within 1,000 feet of a public or private K-12 school. The existing regulations require that anyone who wishes to obtain a tobacco retailer's permit for a business that is 15,000 square feet or less and within 1,000 feet of a school must first obtain a conditional use permit from the zoning administrator. If the business is over 15,000 square feet, a conditional use permit is not required. Since 2012, the zoning administrator has conducted a public hearing for one conditional use permit for a retailer within 1,000 feet of a school. One permit is currently under review. At the August 22nd 
City Council meeting, Council Member Ashby detailed issues of crime, loitering, and potential harm to youth relating to the sale of tobacco by stores in her district. Staff was directed at the meeting to prepare an ordinance that would provide for additional oversight by the city regarding um, tobacco issues. The attached ordinance to your report does the following. Amends the definition of tobacco products, paraphernalia and retailers to include new electronic products and products that um, have come to light since 2012. Requires a conditional use permit for all stores, 15,000 square feet or less, that devote more than 2% or 250 square feet, whichever is less, of the store's retail square footage to the sale of tobacco. Prohibits any new tobacco licenses for stores 600 feet or less from a public or private K-12 school. This applies to a store of any size, so over and under 1,500 square feet. The prohibition, the prohibition of stores within 600 feet was chosen to mirror the cannabis regulations that are currently being reviewed by the city. Oh, your next item. <laughs> a store that was 15,000 square feet between 600 and 1,000 square feet of a school could sell tobacco under this code if the square footage of the store met the 2% 250 square foot requirement. In developing the ordinance, staff reviewed other cities in California with ordinances for, for small tobacco retailer regulations. Square footage requirements were used in other codes. Staff felt that because the focus of this ordinance is on smaller tobacco retailers and will impact more businesses in the city, a square footage percentage would be appropriate. But I do want to mention that staff in reviewing the ordinance does propose to make changes to the proposed ordinance before it goes to law and legislation committee. And this would include modifying the 250 square foot 2% requirement to be a square footage of shelf space rather than retail square footage. So that would, so for example, if without the amendment, you could have floor space of 250 square feet with multiple shelves. So you could have more than 250 square feet of product. By modifying it this way, you could have one shelf with, but counting the, it could be like one foot by 10 feet, you know, so then that would be 100 basically if you had 10 shelves in that. Um, and then add the, re the restrictions to the R4A, R4, five RMX, OB, OB2, and OB3 zones. Staff has heard, and I, um, uh, the county, Sacramento County Tobacco Control Coalition, staff had heard from them, and this afternoon they sent a letter, which I've given you in support of the proposed ordinance. Um, to my knowledge, um, there was also a couple other calls requesting information, but I do not believe that they could not, the Tobacco Control Coalition could not be here this evening, and uh, I don't know if anyone else is here to speak on this this evening. 
Staff recommends that the Commission review the proposed ordinance and make a recommendation on the adoption of the proposed changes to Title 17 to the City Council. This concludes my presentation and I'm happy to answer any questions. I want to note that Jose Mendez from the City's Code Enforcement Division, he's Code Manager, is also here to answer questions if you have any on the tobacco retailer permit process. Thank you, Ms. Patterson. Is there any members of the public like to speak on this item? There's public comment cards in the back. Just take it to the Commission's Secretary. Uh, we have a couple of Commissioner questions and comments. I want to go to Commissioner Lindsay. I wanted to disclose that I did uh, talk to uh, District 1 staff on this subject so, and this item. So I, I, didn't, I apologize. I didn't hear if you called for that. Sorry, I missed you, uh, Commissioner Lindsay. Commissioner LaFaso. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Appreciate, Ms. Patterson, the clarification on the 250 square foot, 2% exemption. A any insight as to the reasoning behind either the original threshold or the proposed change that you mentioned a moment ago? I think I would say it was a realization. We had looked at the wording of other cities and uh, this was similar wording and also similar wording that we have in our code for alcohol. But if you recall a year or so ago, oh, when I we recall. were looking at, yes, as at amending the Stockton Broadway SPD, that was an area of a contention. And in talking to, I actually talked to a small store owner this morning, uh, just in general about retail and what retail square footage meant to her. And she said the constant that they don't typically look at shelves when they're looking at that, they look at um, square footage on the ground because that's a constant and your shelving is always changing in a store. But also that at one point she was going to sell candy and the county health department had a 25 square foot limitation on bulk candy sales in her particular store for taxing purposes and things. And she asked, what does that mean? And voila, they couldn't answer her just like we have difficulty answering on what does that 250 square feet mean. I think that the intent of this proposed change was to limit the amount of tobacco sales in a small store and by using shelf space in our definition or in our code that's clear and will limit the space I, I sort of follow you you gave me a lot of detail on the application of the rule but you didn't answer my question which boiled down to why so I do agree with a, a inference you made a moment ago that the proposed change will in my language, narrow the exception for this small area. But I'm still trying to understand what the th thinking behind is it, and if your answer is you're utilizing the thinking of other jurisdictions, I'm hoping that they gave you some thinking. Um, if uh, I'll give you one more chance to answer my question, and after that I'll try proposing an answer myself. The, the idea of not 100% restricting a smaller store from a small bit of tobacco sales. This is what this would allow. The, as a policy item, it could be that 
no tobacco, the, the 250 square foot, 2% could be eliminated completely. It looked like other jurisdictions, since we're making a major change to these stores, we went on the side of seeing what other jurisdictions in California did. Um, it's a quantitative limit, so I guess I was trying to relate it in quantitative terms. So as I understand it, you know, I, I, I know the rudiments of, of state regulation, but I think we all know that principal focus is preventing tobacco products from being purchased by minors, so most of the tobacco products are always in those little racks behind the cash register. And it's hard to see that, say, a small convenience store, a small gas station convenience store or other small corner store that has one of those racks behind a single cash register is going to meet a uh, 250 square foot shelf space threshold. It seems to me that y your practical application is to, is, to, is to exempt those types of stores and any other store like the Rite Aid on the corner, the cigarettes on the one on K Street. I think most Rite Aids and Walgreens have at least one cash register where there's a cigarette rack behind it, and you know they're pretty uh, they're pretty shallow because you know cigarettes don't take up that much space, at least in a depth sense. And I could, in my own you know crass calculation, easily envision even with the shelf space measurement that you alluded to, that easily five or so of those racks behind one each behind one cash register wouldn't cross over this uh, 250 square foot shelf space threshold. Is that what the intention is? The intention is that the smaller the stores that sell a small amount of tobacco would not have to uh, go through the use permit process. Okay, you keep you keep describing you keep using the term small without reference to anything the, that well, exists in the real world. And what we define as small is the two percent which so, or 250 square feet, whichever is less. So there could be other ways of defining that. That's the way some, you know, jurisdictions do 3% or do different things. We, this is what we are proposing. Did any jurisdictions give you any insights as to how the, their 250 or 3% yeah. or, applied in the real world? He just looked at codes online. Okay. Um, before I yield one comment, the red line version of the ordinance and the staff report doesn't have a whole lot of redlining. It, it has does a lot and, of blue lines. <laughs> well, um, but maybe it was the reproduction. All I'm trying to say is the definitional changes related to, you know, vaping and, and, and the like weren't apparent as changes. Okay. Maybe you might want to take a look at that when okay. it comes to council. Yes. It, it, I apologize, I got the ordinance at, at last minute and it was blue lined and I didn't have an opportunity to change it to red. So it may not have come out appropriately. All right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fazel. Commissioner Lindsay. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I'd like to ask uh, for those existing smoke shops and those establishments under 15,000 square feet, if they um, go through an ownership change or violate the terms of their tobacco license, come into the new 
um, ordinance, how does that affect their license? So if they have an ownership change through the retail permit, that's, that's conducted through that permit, and so they would need to get a new license. But your use permit runs with the land. So if, if uh, the use is meeting the conditions of approval, as with any use, if there's a change of ownership, as long as you're meeting your use permit, um, abiding by your use permit, you can continue to operate. Of course, as with any use permit, if you're violating your conditions of approval, we can take um, code enforcement action on you mm -hmm. all the way up to revoking your conditional use permit. And I also believe, aside from um, revoking a conditional use permit, that um, code also has um, ways of revoking and suspending licenses. Yes. So. Okay, so clarify again for me. So if you do have a change ownership, you do have to apply for a new license? You'd have to amend your license. Correct? Under the which would be under the new I'll have I'll have Jose come up and explain that to you. It wouldn't have anything to do with Title 17 if there is a change of ownership in the store. Hi, good evening. Jose Mendez, code manager. Yes, a change of ownership would require a, a new application for a license. And as far as the uh, retailers found in violation, they would have their license suspended for first violation would be 30 days, second violation would be 90 days up to a year, and then ultimately revocation of the license if they continue to sell to the minors. So then, but the new application change of ownership, it, you would be applying then under the new ordinance and you would have to follow, no? No, I think what Joe was trying to say is the, the, the use permit would apply to the land. A change of ownership would just basically require a new application. This, this use permit would be like any use permit. So it's going from the, if the site does not have a use permit now, it would be subject to the use permit. The other ones would be deemed, would have deemed conditional use permits. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Um, Commissioner uh, continuing on with that, I think I already know the answer to this, but um, somebody who is right next to a school who's doing business now, they're kind of grandfathered in, I assume, right? Right. They, they would have a deemed use permit. Even if they sell the business, they still get to do, that stays with the land, so they have to get a new business license, but they, but they, they're, be not, non they're not put use. out of business and be non-conforming use. Um, and then, but a school can, you can build a school within 600 feet of one though, right? Correct. <laughs> okay. That's the school's choice. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Commissioner LaFossa. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Continuing on the same theme, I. I think I understood the answer to the question, but I guess I'll rephrase the question. What conditions would re might require an existing retailer engaging in tobacco that would fall under the terms of the conditional use permit under the proposed ordinance to be required to apply for a conditional use permit? Might it be 
uh, uh, being shut down because they continue to operate without a renewed license, if they being shut down because they uh, had a license revocation, uh, ceased to operate for a period of time, fill in the blank, question mark? Yes. If they, the use was discontinued for over a year. Over a year. For any reason. Revocation, suspension, just voluntary cessation of business. We just went out of business and the store was vacant for a year and somebody else came in and they wanted to sell tobacco. Is it possible for a an existing business to continue to operate for with a suspended or revoked license or under some kind of sanction for up to a year, and if that occurred, would they be required to get a conditional use permit, or if they're able to continue operating um, for that length of time with a suspended license, does that not count toward the year right. you if, referenced? If they did not sell tobacco, so if the store was still there, but they did not sell tobacco for over a year, then they would be required to get a conditional use permit unless they didn't meet the, unless they were too close to a school, then they wouldn't be allowed to apply. Yeah. Last question, same theme. Uh, bus hypothetical Business X uh, gets its license suspended, continues to sell cigarettes for four months with a suspended license. Um, then ceases to sell cigarettes. Uh, nine months later, uh, they try to get a new license from the city. That's 13 months after they stopped selling cigarettes legitimately, but only nine months after they stopped selling cigarettes in fact. Did they fall within the 12-month limit or not? Well, I'd probably consult with my attorney before, <laughs> but uh, um, in some cases, when you even apply for a permit in your non-conforming use, the clock stops. So, but until because you may, the change of use may occur. I, I say, I'd say, I'm not sure to your answer because they were selling, but they were selling illegally. Mr. Heron, do you want any insight? I think that would not be considered an authorized sale. I think that uh, illegal sales would not be in compliance with their deemed conditional use permit, so they would not get the uh, advantage of any time where they continue to sell tobacco products without a proper license from Title V. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fossil. Commissioner Kaufman? Um, do we have any sense of how many existing retailers that will be grandfathered um, under this are within the distance limits? Right now we have about 406 retailers in the city. 120 of those retailers are within 1,000 feet of a school, and 58 of those retailers are within 600 feet of a school. So, And you've had one applicant right. and one so under consideration. The, yes. So most of them were there 
before 2012 and have been renewing their licenses. So under current code, unless they're over 15,000 square feet. I can't tell you how many of those are over and how many are under. I can just give you those numbers. Interesting market dynamic, don't you think? Thank you. Thanks, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Um, you made a comment or there was a discussion that sort of piqued my interest. If a conditional use permit is granted and then a school builds within, what, 600 feet or whatever it is, does that business then, through no action of its own, become a non-conforming use? All the constraints of a non-conforming use? They were there illegally as not requiring a conditional use permit now they're or, within that so probably or requiring conditional use yeah. permit but they were there legally operating and then let's say a school moves in. I would say that they become a legal non-conforming use so if they were going to you know if some they left or there was some change that required a modification they would need to abide by the non-conforming use rules and deemed special use permit rules. So through no fault of their own, they would be burdened with some additional requirements with the designation of non-conforming. And that, and that would happen for any use that has a conditional yes, use permit. Yes, understood. But I've never thought of it that way, of a condition changing not of the uh, conditional use permit, use permit holder's uh, action. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Any public comment on this matter? Seeing none. Any other Commissioner questions, comments, motions? Commissioner Odipa Member. <clears throat> I move to accept staff's recommendation. Fantastic. We have a motion from Commissioner Odipa Member, a second from Commissioner Yee. Before I take the vote, we'll go to Commissioner Lindsay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I, I would like to propose a couple of amendments to the, the staff recommendation. Um, the first is to require the conditional use permit to be elevated from a zoning administrative straighter CUP to a planning and design commission's CUP. Um, this would allow, if necessary, an appeal to the city council. So I'd like to make that amendment number one. And the second one would be to modify language to require retail establishments under 15,000 square feet that go through an ownership change to comply with the new requirements. And the third one is to modify language to require existing tobacco retailers under 15,000 square feet that violate the terms of their tobacco retailers license and I believe that falls under title 5 uh, to comply with the new CUP requirements Baker in the secondary
Mr. No. Mr. Herring, you have a hold on for a second, Commissioner. I'm sorry. Could I ask for clarification? I'm not sure I heard the second change right. It was the request for a change to say if there was a change in ownership. Yes. Uh, could you explain that again? I, I, I'm sorry. That if an establishment under 15,000 square feet goes through a change of ownership, an ownership change, that that would trigger um, compliance with the new requirements. If if a current business that does that doesn't have a CUP under this, a, a current tobacco retailer, if they change ownership, they would need a new CUP? Yes, if they I, fall under the 15,000 square feet. I think the problem with that is if they're, a, if they're currently authorized, you're not supposed to make a conditional use permit, including a deemed conditional use permit, uh, not transferable to a new owner. There's case law that doesn't let you do that. It's the runs with the land concept. So it sounds like we're suggesting a change that would say uh, if you're illegal now but you change ownership, you need a new CP, CUP under the new code. I, I think we have a, we'd, we'll have to look at that, but I don't think we can do that. Okay. So um, could I ask that that be looked into and then modify the amendment for the, for the first and the third? to be included in the staff's recommendation? Uh, Commissioner Lindsay, I, I, I hear what Mr. Heron said, and again, that's where my confusion was coming from. I believe that the conditional use permit runs with the land, so it appeared at least two of the components that you were requesting might already be addressed, but I, I just want to make sure you get some clarification on that. And then in terms of the first question regarding um, Playing in design commission as opposed to the zoning administrator. Uh, the reasoning behind that is around. Could you just give me a little bit more context as to uh, why you believe that that would be elevated to uh, planning design commission? I just want to understand the context before making a decision. For the appeals process, then to the city council, if it comes to, if I'm correct, if it comes to the planning and design commission, then a decision can be appealed to the city council and I think that would be more appropriate than um, just an administrator uh, so, so Mr. approval Aaron, process. I just want to ask the city attorney a question. Yes. So right now under as the, the language is currently proposed the zoning administrator would have the decision on these CUPs. Uh, Commissioner Lindsay would like that to be elevated to Planning and Design Commission as a part of her friendly amendment. I, I understand my question to you is if there was a desire for appeal of the zoning administrator's decision, could you just clarify the process in which that appeal would be handled? Yes, the conventional provisions of our code provide that when the initial decision is by zoning administrator is appealable to this body and then the appeal stops there. Now, of course, the zoning administrator has general authority to elevate things to be heard in the first instance to the planning commission. And if that's the case, then the next appeal or actually the the one appeal would be to city council. I think the request is to begin the decision stage at the planning and design commission level, period. I think that's what the commissioner was and, at. And I, I do respect Commissioner Lindsay's uh, approach, but at, at this point in time, I, I wouldn't be in a position to accept that friendly amendment as a part of this motion, but I'd be happy to uh, hear from others. 
Thank you, Commissioner Budipamimba. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Let's see what other commissioners. And the oh, third, um, the third amendment. That if there's a violation. Could you clarify the third? I'm sorry. That if an existing retailer, 15,000 square feet or less, has a violation, um, that they have to um, comply with the um, new CUP requirements. And I guess I guess the reason why for all three motions or all three friendly amendments for me, I believe that there's processes in place that actually address those violations. So I, I'm not seeing, and again, I might be in the minority, but I'm not seeing why we would need to add the additional language to the motion since there are processes that currently the city has in place to address those violations, to address uh, uh, the appeal process. So at this point, I, I, I prefer to move forward with the motion as it stands. But again, there's a process in case others feel otherwise to, to, to cancel that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. We'll go with other commissioners' questions and comments. Uh, Commissioner LaFasa. Mr. Chair, I just want to ask a couple questions behind the thinking of the amendment, which we kind of got to in some of the earlier questions. But, Mr. Heron, when there is a use in a city that doesn't require a conditional use permit and then a city imposes a conditional use permit requirement, you made reference to the deemed permit. We don't call that a nonconforming use. That's not the line of legal thinking we go down. What's my, my, in, in the context of either questions, the suggestion was that the cessation of the use uh, for a year sort of canceled out the deemed conditional use permit. Can you explain that a little bit better? And is that a case law driven thing? Is that a city ordinance driven thing? Can you elaborate? That's a city ordinance driven thing. Uh, when we adopted the brand new planning and development code in 2013, we specified that uh, certain uses that would now need a conditional use permit were given a deemed conditional use permit. And it was intended to capture their use in the size and in the, the manner in which it was conducted at the time. Sometimes that's hard to prove. And that any change in that would require an amendment to that, which is essentially a new application for a new conditional use permit or switching their use. And uh, so they're captured in that use as they are under a deemed conditional use permit. And of course, as you indicated, if they s ceased use uh, for a period of a continuous period of one year, they would no longer be authorized under that deemed conditional use permit. Likewise, if they want to change what they're doing, they have to apply to do that. Since there are, I, I, I'm under the impression there are property rights issues behind that, which is to say, is the year non-operation that cancels the is that choice of a year as opposed to six months or two years? Is that rooted in case law somewhere? How flexible is that period of time? As it is somewhat flexible, that, but that's generally the, uh, the time period that's been accepted by, accepted by the courts when uh, this issue comes up because uh, of, often there are intervening factors that happen to people that are beyond their control. 
but that's why we have a safety valve procedure where people can apply for an extension and say, I know I'm discontinued, but uh, I had an intervening event that caused that, you know, perhaps a death in the family or something like that. And so we have that safety valve procedure. But you're right, it's set in place to provide some certainty to both uh, business operators and the city as to what rules apply and when. And obviously when the city adopts new code provisions, they want uh, businesses that come online to use those because circumstances change and that's why codes have been adopted. And it's been a determined, at least in the city's policy view, that a, a continuous period of one year is sufficient and constitutionally defensible to say you need to apply for uh, a new permit under the new rules. Appreciate that. Um, I'll acknowledge that I'm a little far afield in the sense that non-operation is not the same as change in ownership, even though those circumstances could have a relationship. So um, uh, you suggested in an earlier response that periods of uh, non-authorized operation might not count toward this, uh, might count negatively with regard to the deemed conditional use permit um, as non-operation, as, as, or more precisely, not authorized operation. Um, is that is that is that written into 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 the ordinance, or is that just a is that just sort of a practical application? Of the I think that would be an application based upon the terms of how our code is written. Uh, I think the basic idea is that is you don't get to enjoy any fruits of illegal activity. Appreciate that. Um, is Revenue Department around? Can you come back, sir? As you're walking to the dais, um, I was wondering if you might be able to. Well, just to help us set the universe, tell us roughly how many tobacco licensees there are in the city and give us some sense as to how many fall out of compliance with their license and give us a ballpark as to the length of time that that out-of-compliance period tends to be. Sure. Um, we have about 400 applications currently active in the city. Uh, we routinely inspect uh, all 400 twice a year. We partnered with the police department to conduct sting operations, and I would say last year I think we had about um, five or six suspensions over the year. And it, they usually we don't have repeat offenders. They'll, they'll usually get suspended once, they'll learn the lesson, and then that's it. And when you say suspend, suspended usually means if you, if you clean up your act, you can get it back. Am I misunderstanding? If you're caught selling tobacco to a minor uh, to do the sting operations with the police department, then your license is suspended for 30 days, and you cannot sell tobacco or tobacco paraphernalia for that period of time. Is the ordinary circumstance that they don't sell for 30 days and they start up again? So, and, and do you have repeat offenders who get? Rarely. Uh, sorry? Rarely. Rarely, okay. Okay, so the non-operation is 30 days. Right. Okay. Um, any, any, any ball, maybe you answered this question, I didn't hear you. Ballpark as to how many how many licenses get suspended in a given year? I think last year we had about six or seven, but I'd have to look at that information and get back to you with the accurate number. Okay, that's a good ballpark. Thank you very much. Um, I, I I'm not a totally on point, Commissioner Lindsay, but um, I'm just planning to play around with the rules to see what leeway you might get. One of the reasons for my last question and in, in the back of this is the. Um, I guess I'm a little on the fence on this, but this question of the level of review 
kind of relates to the volume of applications. Um, candidly, we don't want the Planning and Design Commission to become the Tobacco Permit Review Board. So, you know, 400, somewhat manageable universe. There's another universe we're going to talk about in about 10 minutes that, you know, same issues apply. Um, council can do anything it wants with our recommendations. So in my, sometimes in my view, uh, the purpose of all this is to vet the issues and give them stuff to think about. But uh, anyway, that's been the intent behind my questions. Uh, no further comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fosso. Commissioner Yee. Thank you. <clears throat> As the uh, seconder of the motion, I do agree that um, there are provisions for non-compliance and such. Um, so I am not in support of at least the second and the third uh, friendly suggestion uh, amendment. But let me ask a question with regards to the the zoning administrator's uh, role, and as was, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as was noted, the zoning administrator's decision is appealable to the planning commission. At which point, it stops. There is no further appeal of this body's decision uh, when it is an appeal of the zoning administrator's decision. Is that correct? There is no way for that decision to go to council. Let me know. Correct. Correct. Okay. If the zoning administrator elevates it to a planning commission decision, or if it comes to the planning commission with the, with the friendly amendment, then it is appealable to the council. Correct. Okay. Um, I somewhat fear asking this question because as soon as you answer it, I'll probably say I should have known that. What is the difference between a deemed conditional use permit and a non-conforming use? We've heard both. So I guess the deemed conditional use permit regulations are in the non-conforming section of the code. So you can see where it's a, they're similar. But That's sort of a, my... a deemed permit would be at one point um, ABC, well, at one, you didn't need a use permit for a bar. Now you do. So if that bar was in existence since 1960 and it's, it now has a deemed conditional use permit. The other would be if you had a use that was allowed in the C2 zone um, and the zone was changed to um, R2, <laughs> um, that use would become a legal nonconforming use. Okay, so if you never had conditional use permit, then you are and you're operating, then that would be a deemed conditional use permit. Whereas if you had one, and circumstances change, a school is built or, or a zoning change, then you would be the non-conforming. If I may, I, th I think. Uh, I need to make a slight correction uh, to what was stated earlier. Uh, if you have a valid conditional use permit, it was valid when issued uh, because you were not in violation of any uh, uh, siting requirements such as being close to a school, and subsequently a school comes and locates closer, that doesn't 
make you a legal non-conforming use. Uh, okay. You were because under because the definition of legal non-conforming use means something happened it to our rules after you got your permit that now makes you not in compliance with our rules. If our rules, uh, our rules talk about citing yourself. Uh, that is, when you came in, you were legal. We we don't interpret the code to say now that a school has come, uh, you're non-conforming. Okay. However, if they needed to come in for a new permit, they they're going to they're going to have a problem with the new rules. Is that does that make sense? It's a, it's a definitional distinction between legal non-conforming and and our deemed permits. Okay, I I accept that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Commissioner Koval? Also known as Brookfield School. <laughs> Sorry, just had to throw that out there. Um, the, if, if somebody's license, their license is suspended, it doesn't affect the conditional use permit, right? So if their license suspended, um, they can't sell tobacco, but it doesn't, the, the conditional use permit runs with the land. I could be the owner of the property, and I could get it entitled with a conditional use permit to sell tobacco or cannabis or alcohol and rent to somebody who's going to be doing that. So if my tenant gets in trouble, their license could be taken away, but it doesn't take away my conditional use permit on my property. Is I, that correct? I would say if there was a continuous um, detriment, if it doesn't seem like it happens with tobacco, but they were constantly in violation. We were constantly having police or code coming out to the site. Then in addition to whatever happens under Title V, we could institute revocation of the use permit procedures against them. That would be pretty, pretty extreme, though, it sounds like. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Koval. Commissioner Lindsay? Okay, so I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this item is going to go to Ledge and Law um, Committee in a couple weeks. Its tentative schedule would be to go in to the Law and Legislation Committee on November 14th, and then it, it's uh, to go to City Council on December 5th. So there will be uh, additional, t more time to um, have discussions about some of the points that I raised. Uh, in North Natomas, we, in August, we had a smoke shop that was um, an armed robbery and they were targeted specifically because it was a smoke shop. And so there's a little bit greater concern um, from the, the council member in, that, in the district uh, regarding some of these issues. So um, I'm not opposed to the ordinance moving forward. As I understand, there will be more time to discuss these points moving forward. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Commissioner Bodipa, member. Thank you, Chair Brooke. Burke, excuse me. And thank you, Commissioner Lindsay, for 
for the context, and I think that we have the ability um, in our our motion to also include if we, the emphasis for discussion, the points that Commissioner Lindsay brought to the table, even if they're not included as a part of the motion. That's my understanding as a part of the report that we can at least uh, identify that that was a point of contention that was brought up uh, at this commission. Is, is that correct in the assumption? I would recommend that if that's what you want to be part of what is transmitted, that the commission indicates that to me because we don't, as part of um, our transmittal, we don't indicate everything that's that's discussed. Uh, but we do indicate what is every fine. We we aren't going with every point that's discussed, but if. As part of the motion, we will put in what the motion was and whatever recommendation you want us to put in. I guess I want to say is, if you want us, want me to include that, I'd like you to let me know. And I believe, if I'm following protocol, that would require someone, as a part of the friendly amendment, not to necessarily add that language to be changed, but to add that that discussion be incorporated as a yeah, part of the motion. I, I, I and I would that, be asked to approve yeah, that. Yeah, I think that if, if you would like me to add the discussion and the discussion of the three um, proposed, of the proposed a friendly amendment, um, I can do that. I appreciate the clarification. I, I'd just like to know that that's what you want. <laughs> I appreciate the clarification. Thank you, Chair Burke. Thank you, Commissioner Wadi Member. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I'm sympathetic with uh, what Commissioner uh, Lenzi, uh, uh, um, the points that she tried to make. So I would like to make the friendly amendment that did not change the language, but we would like to transmit the, uh, the points that are of the discussion. I would accept that friendly amendment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the seconder. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Oh, we'll go with the vote on that item right now. Commissioner Bodipo member? Aye. Basso? Aye. Coville? Aye. Hoffman? No. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Buckybaum? Aye. Rogers? No. Ron Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Ogilvy? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to item number four, um, an ordinance amending and deleting various provisions of Title 17 of the Sacramento City Code relating to cannabis dispensaries. Any commissioners need to recuse themselves? Seeing none. Um, and also for the public, if you'd like to speak on this item, there's comment cards in the back. Just fill them out and bring it to the commission secretary in the front. Ms. Patterson. Thank you, Chair Burke and members of the Commission. Tonight, the cannabis ordinance before you deals with cannabis dispensaries, but I'd like to give you a little background before we go into the provisions of this ordinance. In 2009, the city started a process to determine whether or not it wanted to permit medical marijuana dispensaries in the city. Staff ask existing about illegal dispensaries to come in and register with the city. If they registered, the city would not close them down while we were investigating alternatives. 
58 dispensaries registered with the city. In October of 2010, the City Council adopted regulations for medical marijuana dispensaries. Title V, the Business License Code, and Title 17, the Planning and Development Code, were amended. Title V indicates that business permits can only be issued to dispensaries that were registered pursuant to Ordinance 2009-033 and also filed an application with the city by March 31, 2014. 30 dispensary operations in the city meet this criteria. These dispensaries can re relocate if they meet Title V and 17 criteria, but currently no new dispensaries are permitted. In November of 2016, the voters of California passed Proposition 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. In early 2017, the Sacramento City Council adopted regulations for cultivation of marijuana in order to meet state guidelines. Well, I, actually, I want to say that we, we did that, but um, the council also placed a moratorium on accepting applications. The moratorium has been lifted, and in the spring of 2017, the city began accepting applications for the cultivation, product manufacturing, and testing of marijuana. The state of California will begin accepting applications for marijuana businesses on December 1st, 2017, and anticipates that the first licenses for marijuana businesses will start January 1st, 2018. In order to be in line with the types of permits that the state of California will be issuing, city staff at the direction of the City Council and Law and Legislation Committee have been bringing a number of ordinances to the committee and council for their review and approval. And as you know, any changes to the city code which propose changes to Title 17 require the review and recommendation of the Planning and Design Commission. The ordinance that was presented to you in September related to changes in cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and testing, and it was heard by the City Council on October 24th, along with changes to Title V. The Council continued this item to November 28th, so the City's Office of Cannabis Policy could provide them with additional information. In addition, the ordinance before you this evening and related changes to Title V will be reviewed by the Law and Legislation Committee on November 1st, 14th and will also be heard by the City Council on November 28th. Now for the ordinance before you this evening. In order for the sale of marijuana for adult use, um, for the sale of adult use marijuana to occur, the term medical marijuana dispensary is being removed and being replaced with the term cannabis dispensary. Title 17 is also being modified to delete the, delete the word marijuana and replace it with cannabis as the term is more widely accepted and it's used in other sections of the city code through the amendment process. The existing 30 dispensaries that I mentioned would now fall under the definition of and be known as storefront dispensaries. The amendments to the code would also create a category of delivery only dispensary. These new dispensaries would not have customers at their site but would still require a conditional use permit. 
This section of the code is also being amended for ease of understanding. Article 7, medical marijuana dispensary is being deleted and section 17.228.920, cannabis dispensary is being added in the special use section. The proposed special use updates the code by eliminating special provisions for discontinuance, nonconformance, and revocation that are now unnecessary. In the future, a conditional use permit for a dis dispensary will be governed by the same use uh, regulations as other conditional use permits. Definitions that we had for medical marijuana dispensary have been carried um, relating to youth facilities and um, such have been carried over to the new section along with uses commonly referred to as the sensitive uses. Promote, proposed modifications to the sensitive uses are to reduce the distance between storefront dispensaries to 600 feet and not have a distance requirement between delivery only dispensaries. There's not a distance between delivery only dispensaries proposed as there will be no customers on the premises and it's anticipated that some delivery only dispensaries may wish to share one site. All dispensaries would be required to be 600 feet from a school. If a, if a dispensary could not meet the distance requirements from parks, child care centers, youth-oriented facilities, faith congregations, substance abuse centers, cinemas, tobacco retailers, or residential, a conditional use permit would be required at the commission level. If the distance requirements can be met, the application can start at the zoning administrator level. And again, in no case can a dispensary be permitted within 600 feet of a school. Staff would recommend that the commission consider the proposed ordinance and make a recommendation of approval to city council. Members of the city's cannabis policy team are also here. Um, and if any questions come up that would be appropriate for them to answer, they will answer them. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you, Ms. Patterson. I have a couple of commissioner questions. Commissioner LaFossil. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ms. Patterson. I wanted to put this in context a little bit. Um, I guess I'll start with an easy one. If I understand correctly, the state statute doesn't use the term dispensary. It uses the term retail license. Any insight on why we're continuing the term dispensary and not um, not using the term retail license? Well, I would defer to <laughs> the city attorney in charge of this. Hi, Steve Itagaki from the city attorney's office. I don't think there's any uh, particular reason other than that's the term that we have been using at this point. The term that the state is now using and that term and other terms have also been changing and evolving over the past few years, um, including the term marijuana. We I, had used that term uh, until... Okay. It's a relatively minor point, so I got more important ones, so I'm not going to... Okay. I'm gonna, but it has bearing on a subsequent question, so don't go away, please. Um, so... Um, 
You made reference to a distinction between storefront dispensaries and delivery-only dispensaries. The draft we have in front of us says they're defined in Chapter 5.150. There is no definition in Chapter 5.150, which is all of the consolidated cannabis, is the consolidated cannabis chapter in uh, Article 5. So help me understand where we're going on defining storefront and delivery-only dispensaries when evidently we don't have a, any draft language that says what they are. And I will say that the draft language is currently being developed. The idea is that, that we have the same definition, but I'll have um, the city attorney address that, what the language is looking like. Yeah, the language is currently being drafted. It's not finalized yet, but it will be um, made available to the Lawn Ledge Committee, uh, I believe it's on the 14th, their meeting. Right. Understood. It has bearing on a number of circumstances that will drive how the conditional use permit process applies in a couple contexts, which is where I'm going. Uh, the first one is um, Ms. Patterson made reference to, I don't know what the language use, a de facto cap on the number of dispensaries. Uh, based on those which were approved and those which ultimately those which fulfilled the four requirements in section 5.150.350. And I understand that cap is, it's a function of the ordinance. There's no, nowhere does it say there is a cap of 30. It's just that's a, and I don't know if there are how many are in operation. I, I think it's 27 or 26, which theoretically means that somebody could enter and fit under that cap. Um, do we anticipate that cap will continue, and if so, how will it continue? It can't continue under the guise of, you know, the current definition in 5150350 because that's not going to be relevant anymore because, the, you know, the nonconforming users in 2009 isn't kind of relevant anymore. How's that going to work? Um, the direction from the Law and Ledge Committee was to develop the um, Title V Business Operations Permit Ordinance to limit the number of storefront cannabis dispensaries to 30. Okay. Um, and as far as the delivery-only cannabis dispensaries, there was not, uh, there is not going to be a cap on it. And that, that's the direction of? On ledge, yes. Okay. Um, I'm curious about what that's going to mean for delivery-only dispensaries. And, again, just by way of background, as I'm sure you know, Mr. Isagaki, um, one of the biggest issues in the original medical statute, Prop 64, and the consolidated Prop 64, is the degree of vertical integration of the businesses. So I have heard some concerns that, and I don't even know if it's a concern, reality, just to understand how it plays out, that some cannabis production businesses, which as we discussed the last time we had cannabis in front of us, may apply for multiple uses, including but not limited to cultivation and uh, I believe it's manufacturing, um, might want to add uh, delivery only to their business model um, is A, is that possible? B, is that something that staff has contemplated in its construction of the amendments? 
and see what specific requirements relative to a cannabis production license might be required to add a delivery-only license slash conditional use permit? Uh, that is possible. It's possible on the state level with their licenses, and it would be possible uh, for the city permits also. Um, and procedurally, my understanding would be that they would need to apply for a cannabis production conditional use permit and also a dispensary-only cannabis uh, delivery-only cannabis dispensary use. I'm, I'm sorry. I know what you mean. A cannabis Dispensary conditional use permit. Right. It's hard to say. <laughs> I tried to do it on the phone today. Right. Um, so, um, as we discussed last time, there are a couple discrete uses that are attached. One, one of the thoughts I have is, well, just as an, a parenthetical point, um, I believe the existing uh, Chapter 150 in Title V says that a cultivation business cannot have any dispensary uses. So it sounds like we're changing that. But, but more to the point that I want to ask about is, are you going to require specific uses be approved to a permittee with a cannabis production license to also seek a uh, delivery-only dispensary CUP? Here, here's where I'm going. The, 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 the state system has many more discrete types of licenses which follow the chain of, of commerce. And most of the, I don't know what we call them, um, you know, more regulated substances like alcohol, tobacco, now cannabis, you know, are very discreet about regulating all of the steps in the stream of commerce. Where I'm going is um, the stream of commerce, as I understand it, in the city's regulatory framework is cultivation, distribution, dispensary. It seems to me incongruous that a cannabis production licensee with only a cultivation use but not a distribution use could also get a dispensary-only CUP because, in the, at least in the city's regulatory framework, that seems to skip a step in the stream, in the stream of commerce. Does that make sense to you, and have you thought about that? Uh, it does make sense, although I think the way that the uh, state regulations will work is that they would need to go through a distributor. So if they cultivate on the property, that product will need to go through a distributor where it, were, where it would be um, confirmed as tested and, and all those things, and then would be provided to the dispensary business. Okay. So even though they may not, that particular business may not have a distributor aspect to it, they would be required to route it through one. Uh, th that makes total sense. Does that mean that if there were a cannabis production licensee permittee that did not have a cannabis distribution license permit, a cannabis distribution license and a city cannabis production CUP with a uh, distribution use attached to it, if they were in that circumstance, that they would be able to cultivate and then operate the delivery-only dispensary from the same site with sort of a paper distribution intervention in the, in the strain of commerce? Or would they actually have to move the cultivated cannabis off-site to the site of that uh, distribution licensee permittee 
and then I don't know if they were going to deliver out of the cultivation site, then I don't know, move it back. You know, would, there re would there be movement required, or would they be able to, in essence, do this as a paper transaction? I think that's yet to be seen. It would depend on the state's regulations, and uh, they have not uh, provided drafts of those regulations yet. I've heard they expect to do so uh, middle of this month. Okay. Okay. Appreciate this rests on top of the state. Um, you indicated that the cap on storefronts but not the cap on delivery-onlys um, was kind of the direction of law and ledge. What, what's the think? Do we think that um, do we think that if we limit storefronts but we don't liver, limit delivery onlys that we're going to cause more delivery onlys to occur than would occur if we allowed more storefront uh, dispensaries to be permitted? I'm sorry, I didn't. I wasn't I'm sorry, that was. That. Do we think do we think capping storefronts causes more dispen more delivery onlys? More delivery? Do we? Well, I shall step it back. Okay. If I if I understand the state statute, um, a storefront dispensary can engage in deliveries. That delivery is not a license category; it's just an activity. It's regulated as an activity with a certain requirements, like the driver has to have the order in the car if the driver gets stopped by law enforcement. And you have to have one of three permits. Two of them are boutique and not worth referencing here. Uh, the most important one is a retailer license. Point being that it's not clear to me the state statute really quite drives a distinction between uh, storefront retail licensees and delivery-only resale uh, uh, retailer licensees, because any retailer licensee um, with a place can engage in delivery as long as they follow those requirements in the in the state code. So again, lots of background. If we don't let people have storefronts, are we going to have more delivery-only dispensaries than if we let more people have storefronts? I I couldn't answer that question. I don't know. Um, Joy, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, other than we have a whole lot of illegal delivery only delivery going on right now. And so more than we have storefront dispensaries. When you say illegal delivery, are you referring to what one might characterize as true criminal activity? Or are you referring to somebody who's operating a legitimate dispensary that abides by whatever rules are in effect on November 2nd, 2017, and whatever city permit requirements are in effect on November 2nd, 2017, which in totality don't really account for delivery. So, yeah, some guy puts it in a car and drives it to the customer two miles away. I'm not away. talking about that. I'm talking about people who... True crime? True crime or... Or, or a legitimate dispensary engaging in delivery because the law doesn't give them guidelines. There's both. Okay, I, I, think, I think it's helpful in this discussion to dis make a distinction between true crime, people who are cultivating illegally, manufacturing illegally, selling it illegally, because those individuals aren't going to suddenly get a delivery permit if that's suddenly required when everything else they do is illegal. Whereas another actor who's engaged in... Uh, 
in, in the cannabis trade as legitimately as it is constructed under the law in effect today, which we all know is going to change in 61 days, um, that person probably will start complying uh, with the law if we give them delivery rules that they can reasonably comply with, which is probably a reasonable expectation since the state statute accounts for it and we're talking about a city ordinance that accounts for it. So I think it's helpful in the discussion to distinguish between legitimate operators. I I would say that there are people out there right now delivering illegal product or legal, well, actually in the city of Sacramento, no one has gotten a cultivation permit yet from revenue. But there are groups of people that want to do delivery only and would like to come in and get permits. But right now we don't have a permit for them to get. But under state law, there will be a permit that they can get. And this proposes a city um, um, category for them to be able to get a permit. Okay. Um, The totality of your answer in response to my question, which was, does capping storefront dispensaries mean we're going to have more delivery-only dispensaries, seemed to be answered in essence, with the answer of, well, there's a lot, so maybe. Um, I I guess it would be helpful to understand more who these people are. Again, the first subset I would take off are the complete underground criminals who are not going to comply. The second group I would take a look at would be um, the individuals who um, who are, you know, the small growers for personal use, who operate under the old, you know, cooperative mindset without and, and probably aren't thinking through the, uh, all of the distribution cultivation rules we're all going to have to do, and I forgot what the small operating rules are. Nevertheless, I can tell Ms. Milstein wants to make a comment. Um, good evening, Chair and members of the Commission. Lainey Milstein, your Finance Director. Um, Cannabis Policy and Enforcement Division falls under the Department of Finance. Um, the Cannabis Delivery uh, business association is very active. They have real live folks who want to be, they, they are businesses operating, whether regulated or not. We would very much like to regulate them. We also have some very big delivery companies that are operating legally currently in the Bay Area who are waiting for us to put code in place so that they can operate legally. So as Joy mentioned, there are our dispensaries that are not legally permitted to deliver now. Um, they may or may not be doing that, and that would be sort of what you're terming legal, but there are a variety of real businesses that very much want to do delivery in a legal manner within the city of Sacramento. And, Ms. Milstein, when you say from Sacramento, you mean from a point originating? You you need a delivery-only conditional use permit for a delivery-only dispensary to originate the delivery in Sacramento, not to... not to truck it up from Oakland and drive on our city streets. Is that correct? Correct. We would only be regulating those who originate delivery within the city limits. We can't regulate somebody who who originates a delivery from outside. Okay. Just to wind down my points and yield the floor to my colleagues, the bottom line issue in all this is figuring out where stuff's going to go. The concentration issues around a delivery-only dispensary source versus a storefront dispensary source are going to be different. And that's why I'm drilling down on this. I'm very, very focused 
on the Title 17 land use implications. But unless we understand what we're going to allow as a general matter, so I appreciate your answer, but I think my questions, you know, are, are, are remain. Thank you both for your responses. Thank you, Ms. Patterson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fossil. Commissioner Ogilvie. Thank you. Um, just two quick questions. On page four, item D4, it, it says that a CUP will be required if a dispensary is within 300 feet of a residential zone. I'm just wondering if there was any consideration given to the central city or you know residential zones that are along commercial corridors. The requirement is now for 300 feet. If the way the ordinance is written, a nude, <laughs> a brand new dispensary, which we won't have, <laughs> could not apply for a use permit within 300 feet. This would allow a dispensary to allow for to apply for a use permit within 300 feet if um, if they go to the Planning and Design Commission. So yes, it is. The idea is that we still feel that having a dispensary within 300 feet is um, of a residential use is, is potentially sensitive and could cause some issues, but. If you are within 300 feet, you can apply to the commission. Okay. Did you consider limiting it within the central city or? No, we just, the rules are basically the same as they are now as far as the distances. Okay. That's a current distance. And then um, on the same page, E1, it says that um, in any zone, the cannabis dispensary must comply with the following, blah, blah, blah. Um, operations cannot be visible from the public right-of-way. What does that mean? They can't have windows or? But it's within a building and you can't see what's going on inside. So it's a storefront, but it's going to be it's, opaque. It's, well, that would be a good point in calling it a storefront dispensary because really our our dispensaries don't have storefronts like typical uses. We don't, you know, want people to see what's going on inside. I mean, is that something you want to encourage? It's a or it's a legal product. It's no, no different than alcohol. No. Not necessarily. I don't understand why we want storefronts that are going to be totally opaque. It's still considered to be a sensitive use and and a use that um, we don't necessarily want visible. Places where there's like a liquor store, they have a certain percentage of their storefront can be transparent, right? But they have to cover some of it or? If that's uh, something that the commission wants to propose to change right now, that's we didn't change that language. That's the way the language is now. All the questions. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Commissioner Koval. Uh, just my idea of that is over time, it'll probably be changing because alcohol. It seems to be a lot of the ones that we've approved. Uh, the authorities want to be able to see into the store where this um, so I, my guess is over time this will be changing 
because it's going to be, this is so new to us. But I do want to speak in, uh, to the uh, uh, distances that we're changing. Having worked on this multiple times myself, uh, I feel I made some mistakes in the past. Um, the thousand foot requirement, because I didn't want it near anything, having been right next to one really bad operator myself, my businesses, uh, kind of tainted my how I felt about things. Since then, I've learned it's all about the operator is really what it's about. Um, so by making it a 1,000 foot, we kind of forced all these retail businesses uh, in, into industrial areas, which probably isn't the best thing for them, place for them to be. So in hindsight, I'm looking back wishing I hadn't voted for that. So I'm very much in favor of changing this back. Um, if it's going to be a legal use, um, we just need to make sure we have a good operator in those places, and that'll take care of it. So I'm in favor of the of, of this. Thank you for your work on it. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, uh, Chair Burke. Uh, and I actually had a question on the very same issue. Um, why has it changed from 1,000 to 600 feet? Is was that more of a staff recommendation? Was that made out of the law and ledge committee? What, what's the thinking behind it? Well, I think Commissioner Koval really did express one of the main reasons why we changed it is that have, to have dispensaries 1,000 feet from each other is um, restrictive, and it did push them out into um, other areas. I think that we're seeing that several of the dispensaries would like to come into the Midtown area. And um, while I think our experiences in visiting other cities that we wouldn't want to create a cluster of all the, of a lot of dispensaries together, that having a 600 foot distance from one another is um, appropriate. And so we're recommending that the distance go down from 1,000 to 600. I mean, I think what I was looking at, and maybe I misread it, but um, there was a 1,000-foot distance requirement from parks and schools that has been reduced down to 600 feet. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so I'm not talking about the context uh, that involves 1,000 feet between dispensaries, and I should have clarified, but... I'm more so talking about the 1,000-foot distance between schools and parks. Right. And, again, in some of the um, areas of in, in the industrial areas, there, because there isn't a lot of residential, there isn't a lot of schools. For um, dispensaries to move in closer to their customers, they're going to be moving closer to, to schools. The idea is we still are prohibiting them 600 feet from a school as it is in state law. But, um, and that's a decision for you. We've, we've, um, are recommending that you, um, not have the thousand foot requirement. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair Lucian. I have a quick question. So, these can be located in a mixed-use kind of development where residential on top and ground floor retail and this use is at the depends bottom? Depends on the zone. Pardon me? It would depend on the zone. Zone, okay. That's what I thought. 
Seeing no other commissioner questions, we do have one public comment card, and it's from Shelly. I can't pronounce the last name. Um, thank you. City Council members, I hope to shed some light on this subject. Um, I've been an activist in the cannabis community since about 2010 and purposely lobbied for the delivery services. I work with League of Chiefs, and, uh, League of Cities, and Cal Chiefs on the delivery service bill itself. Um, we felt that when AB 266 went into um, the Senate floor that the delivery service was accidentally penciled in at the last moment, I guess is what you could say. And we talked to uh, League of Cities and Cal Chiefs about delivery services and why they were needed and how people had no transportation, were in hospice, and that was the reason for delivery services. We understand that there are storefront deliveries or there will be storefront delivery services, but there should be independent delivery services too, and I think that's exactly what you're, you're, you're parting your hairs with right now is the storefront delivery services will actually have a, a storefront location that are, that are already cannabis dispensaries. So that's a complete separate issue. But there are independent people that don't have a storefront because you have a limit on the 30 storefronts here in Sacramento. Now approximately you have about 150 delivery services operating within Northern California in this specific area. We have about 2 million people. Say 10% of those people are cannabis patients. There are a lot of people out there that don't have access to dispensaries and that can't get out and do this. And so the intent was to give these people that have the delivery service an office or a non-storefront area where you could go in and make sure that they were they had proper medicine for their patients. You could see that they were doing business with people that were licensed, that they had product exactly how the state of California wanted it to be set up so you could see that there was a born-on date, a best-by date, that the product was tested, and that they were doing business with people that also had local permits and state licenses. And so I hope that helps you figure out your dilemma here. You guys seem to be all talking about the same thing, but it seems to be going sideways. Is that clear? Did you have any questions about the delivery service storefront that's like actually not a storefront versus a, a dispensary delivery service that would have actual patients going in and out of it? You, you have your 10 seconds left. You have to address this as a, as a whole, as a, as a body. We can't go back and forth. That's okay. I just wanted to make sure you understood there were some uncertainties in your conversations with each other. Thank you so much for your comment. Sure. Uh, oh, question from Commissioner LaFossil. Ma'am. Ma'am, thank you for coming. We, we had an awkward procedural thing where the chair wanted you to uh, complete your three minutes before we took questions. And... Uh, I guess you could have yielded that time 30 seconds ago, but uh, we've never had that situation before. Thank you for coming. I'm sorry I didn't get your name. Um, I'll be Lucero. That's right. You said that. Thank you, Ms. Sure. Lucero. No problem. So I freely admit I, I'm not clear on the delivery issues on the ground, and I was, ten, I was distantly aware of the issues in the legislature from the beginning of the year. But 
you know, we're, we're a land use body, not a permitting body. So I wonder if you just help me. Can you describe, when you say there are 150 services, are you speaking of sort of business entities that might work out of multiple locations and multiple places? Or when you say 150 services, does that mean 150 locations that they work out of? I believe, to shed some light on that, there are 150 different entities, like corporations, that are operating out there to deliver medicine to patients that are in need of patients that are hoping to qualify for this delivery license through local permitting and state licensing. They would also like to have the same setbacks. You, okay. I, I, I'm not getting to that. Um, can you tell me – I'm really trying to just, put, just understand the sites. I'm not going to get all the details of setbacks. So – when you when you speak of these services, can you just give me a sense of how close do they like to be to their delivery customers? I guess what I'm driving at is it's not practical for some service to operate in Oakland and deliver all the way to Sacramento from Oakland. They must want to be closer to their customers. Can you give me some flavor of that? Well, I believe that there should be some geographical, um, you know, boundaries, but right now there's you know, there's a lot of uncertainties with cannabis and the regulations coming up and, you know, medical versus recreational and crossing state lines and county lines. I, I can't answer that for you. Those, I'm afraid, are going to have to go through, uh, you know, the state California, state of California licensing and permitting requirements. Uh, if I may, ma'am, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't asking a policy question. I was asking kind of a business question. Do you think most of them are here in Sacramento and that deliver here? Um, I think that most of them work closer to their patients. So if you were to um, look in Northern California, I think most of them probably live and operate near their patient database. Yes, sir. Okay. All I'm trying to establish is if a delivery service wants to expand its footprint, it wants a, a, a site from which to, 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 to begin it, to originate its deliveries in, in, discrete geographic, er geographic areas where it sees potential customers. Am I, am I getting it right? I believe that's correct. Okay. Can you give me a flavor of the typical delivery site? Are these small sites where they compile product or they, are they attached to other more vertically integrated aspects of the business? Can, can you give me a flavor of what the typical delivery origination site looks like? Well, I can't speak for all of them, but I would say that in general, you would have, um, you know, a couple of drivers and you would have somebody that would answer a phone that would dispatch the calls, would verify the patients, make sure that the recommendations were valid because we're still medical, um, would talk to the patient about their needs and the type of pain they were in or the type of illness, and make certain recommendations on medical cannabis, and then have that, you know, give them a total dollar amount, make sure they were good with that money um, that they spent, and then put it in an order like you would get at a drugstore, and then probably have their recommendation stapled to that with their order and receipt and dispatch it out to a driver who would then answer further questions. If I may? Can you just ballpark how many square footage, square feet is one of these sites? More like 2,000, more like 10,000, more like 20,000, more like 500? Yeah, we've asked for direction on that. I know that I just recently spoke to Zara about this on the phone, I think two days ago. But I think it's, it's a very small square footage, maybe 1,000 to 2,000 or under. It's not 
Yeah, it's not like cultivation. They would have, you know, racks of a few products and, you know, probably like a, a retail store would have, you know, Visine or Motrin or things like that, a few of each type unless they were a larger operation. Do you know of any of the delivery services that attach their site to a production site? I don't know of any, no. Okay. I do know of different delivery services that may have a hub here, and they might have a hub in San Francisco, and they might have another um, hub in, um, you know, Berkeley or whatever. And if you if you go on Weed Maps, the interesting thing about it is you might have one name of a company, but they could have ten different trucks on the map, so they might cover more areas. But there are smaller mom and pop operations that might just cover Roseville or. Rosemont or, you know, Watt Avenue South. And when you say smaller mom-and-pop operations, you mean somebody who obtains their cannabis product from a distributor they're not affiliated with? No, um, I think that none of them are, are working with distribution companies right now because there are no real distribution companies that are, that are permitted. So I think that's another gray area that they would like to be clear on as well. Again, I'm not asking about law and policy. I'm asking about facts. Do they grow it themselves or do they buy it from somebody else? Um, I believe they buy from their product from another person who's hoping to be permitted or that is permitted. Yeah. Okay. I think they're all cor little corporations that are trying to, you know, be a part of this budding industry. Understood. Thank you very much for your answers to sure. my questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Falzo. Thank you. Any other public comment on this item? Seeing none, we'll go to Commissioner Motions. Questions? Commissioner Bodie Pemimba. Thank you, Chair Burke. I apologize. I had some questions for staff um, that I should have asked in the prior session, so I apologize for not getting that. Uh, but, uh, Ms. Patterson, if you could just clarify again, uh, youth-oriented facilities, Give me, can you give me some examples of, of what those might be? There's a definition that describes activities that would have predominantly a large number of minors, and that could be a wide range. We have a definition, so you, you want even more. What, I need some clarity. You want an example. Because to me, soccer. anywhere you see a bunch youth of soccer. kids. Youth soccer. Or youth soccer. Indoor youth soccer. So basically a warehouse, for example, that has a, a youth soccer component would constitute as a youth-oriented facility. But that could also be a place where it would house adult soccer as well. It would have adult soccer too. But I guess that, that helps with my question. Uh, uh, I guess my, my quick statement is... Uh, in reviewing the staff report and hearing the testimony today, it still seems as if there's a lot of uh, clarity that needs to be added because there's a, um, there's a lot of permutations there. And I guess the question as to putting that in front of the zoning administrator versus the, the planning commission um, is something that might need to be discussed given how gray this is. Um, this is a little newer than our previous conversation. Um, I, I appreciate the conversation and questions asked by my fellow commissioners. I, I, I do respectfully want to speak to 
a point Mr. LaFaso, or Commissioner LaFaso brought to the table about um, the delivery component, uh, whether folks who are handling it illegally versus illegally. Um, I do think it might be a leap of logic that folks that are operating in an illegal capacity wouldn't find opportunities to comply um, because I believe that in some cases um, the reason why they might be operating in illegal capacity is because uh, <laughs> there is no other option for some of those individuals. So it, I, I would like to have hope that if we are going to move this into the traditional market that maybe we might assume that some folks might transition that operation in a more legal capacity. I, I do understand where Commissioner Foss is coming from, but um, I just wanted to clarify that, at least from my perspective, that that may not, not indeed be the case. Um, but he does bring up a great point as it relates to how we handle that. Um, I'm not in a position to push forward motion at this point. I'd like to hear from my fellow commissioners, but I, I just wanted to bring the light, at least from my perspective, um, some of the definitions, the distances that were brought up by Commissioner Lucian. Um, while I fully understand what Commissioner Coville mentioned as to some of the, I guess, sins of the past, so to speak, um, I'd still like to get some more logic as to how we got from 1,000 to 600 feet um, from more of a quantitative perspective. So um, staff has responded thus far, but I just want to put that on the table. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. Commissioner Ogilvie? Thanks. Um, I just wanted to follow up on my questions about the operations visibility from the public right away. Um, I'm not convinced that having an opaque storefront is going to make our streets safer. I think they might actually make them more dangerous. I think having legal business operations with eyes on the street at all times or whenever they're in operation is, is a very good thing. And I don't see why... Um, Cannabis dispensaries would have different limitations than, let's say, a, a liquor store. So I'd like to hear from some of the other commissioners who maybe feel the same or differently before proposing a friendly amendment to that to maybe match the or to either revise it or to make it the same as a, a liquor store or we come up with some percentage of the storefront that can be open. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, one quick point. Uh, Commissioner Bodapamemba re-invoked the question of the level of review of the hearing body. I understand this draft tracks what we did for the cannabis production permits, which was pretty much hashed out by council, which is to say uh, zoning administrator appealable to planning and design commission with a unique call-up provision and certain proximity to sensitive uses starting automatically at the Planning and Design Commission. So I think we got that issue taken care of. Um, uh, I, I do want to clarify. I, I guess my, I, a, a lot of my questions, I, I got some uh, six-district line of inquiry today that caused me to read the bigger context and... Um, from my standpoint, I, I just think it would be so much easier for us to understand what we're doing here if we understood what this market looks like. And I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm out to limit delivery-only dispensaries. I must confess I don't fully understand that issue, as I think my line of questioning makes clear. I, I think where I was really going was 
is there an unintended consequence to capping the number of storefront dispensaries, and ought we to th ought, ought we not to think about that collectively so we just sort of you know get a a a fair balance in our in our local market? Um, I'm still trying to understand what the average delivery uh, operation is going to look like. If Ms. Lucero's commentary, you know, holds, then some of the concerns I've heard that these are going to concentrate in uh, the industrial areas of the city because they're going to be attached to larger production businesses, then that implication may not, in fact, be the case. Um, my purpose here is to air this issue since, you know, this is the first of three public meetings to air this issue before the council ostensibly is going to vote on it on November 28th. That's this meeting, the Long Ledge and the council meeting. So I thought it was good to get these out, issues out in the early. Um, but again, one of the issues, that, the high-level issues we keep talking about is this, what are the unintended consequences of what we do that drive concentration dynamics? And I do think, um, apropos to your question, Commissioner Bodepamembam, you know, what's the the math and the data on 1,000 versus 600. We haven't done this in a while, but for a while back, you know, we were always having staff do maps for us. And as the variables get more multitudinous, it's harder to do maps. But the bottom line was when we did 600 versus 1,000, we started squeezing, you know, after they couldn't be near each other, and then we had a distance discussion as to whether it's property line or, or, door fr or, or front door. Uh, we had distances from each other. Um, you got parts of the city where parcels are small, um, parcels of the city where parcels are big. You know, the, the implication is we start squeezing stuff out in certain parts of the city. And as we've heard lots and lots and lots, those parts of the city are um, kind of concerned about, you know, the distribution of the business. And I come, I'm, I'm representing a perspective that's very sensitive about concentration and loosening those rules is a mitigator on the concentration. So it's not quantitative, but it's substantiated. My closing comment, and I'm not ready to make a motion either, um, is, um, Commissioner Ogilvy, I think your point's well taken. Um, <laughs> I guess my reaction to it is pretty crassly practical, which is, I think Commissioner Coville is right, is, People get more comfortable with things. They'll get more comfortable with uh, seeing into the store or at least some kind of window that has a limited kind of display, like your, your, your books and your T-shirts and maybe your paraphernalia and then maybe one day your product. My gut is the current state of this matter is the council is just not ready to go there. So I think if we recommended it, you know, I don't know how we incorporate it, in, it, it to allow it to evolve. Because the way it's structured now, you're right. It, it, when somebody wakes up one day and says, why are we doing this? Someone's going to have to run an ordinance, and no hearing body's going to be able to say, wait a minute. It would be a lot better if we allowed, you know, a quarter of the window space to be devoted to, to whatever, you know, along the lines of the conditions in our, say, alcohol permits. So I'm warm to it. Um, I just don't think we're ready for it. That's kind of crass. But anyway, those are my comments. And... Uh, Appreciate the comments of the fellow commissioners. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner LaFaso. Commissioner Farrell? For joy, thank you. 
For, um, so I see a substance abuse center would be in the 600-foot range, though. Uh, a homeless triage center would be fall under that umbrella. Well, if it's a homeless center that also is providing care for people who have dependency on alcohol or controlled substances, if that's their purpose, but I don't know that necessarily a homeless facility is... Um, but with wraparound care, it would be. So that I think that... Uh, somebody proposed to have a dispensary within 600 feet of that, then some of these we need to, we have and needed to evaluate individually. Thank you. And uh, for Commissioner Ogilvy, um, I'm not sure if it's the same, but with uh, card rooms, any adult-related uh, uh, businesses, like card rooms, um, that's all I can think of at the moment. They're, they're required by the state to have uh, blacked out windows, and I'm not sure if that's not part of the case with the uh, cannabis um, dispensaries. I, I, is, is there a state requirement for the blackout? Card rooms we, are required. We don't know that, but, you know, there could be. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll have to um, tie in with... Uh, Commissioner Covell and LaFossa, that um, it's, in, it's in its infancy, and we're in the Wild West here. And so I, I think that those type of uh, adjustments are, are in the future. Uh, not too long ago, bars were uh, all blacked out. And so um, I, I think uh, it'll, it'll probably evolve. But right now we have bigger fish to fry. So thank you, Joe. Thank you so much, Commissioner Farrell. Commissioner Colville. Thank you, Chair Burke. Uh, I think if I don't think I don't see law enforcement here, but I'll bet you that was a law enforcement uh, issue. You know, this was very much went from illegal um, business to, in my opinion, I called it quasi illegal with the medical marijuana dispensary. So. Uh, they're not here to speak, but I'll, get, I'll bet you that that was the idea is um, they don't want people seeing exactly what's going on there at what day, what time, how they're doing it um, at, right at a specific time where, as you said, bars at one time used to be closed up in some states. You, if Just to make a cocktail, they have to take it behind a wall to make it today, um, even today. So I think over time it probably where we would take a lot of the criminality out of it, there'll be more concern on protecting what's going on on the inside in a different way. And allowing, that's how I feel about it. And to speak again about the area, to just to put it in another way, as I said, it was learning about, it's about the operator. Before, we didn't want these near sensitive uses. 
and we still want to be concerned about sensitive uh, uses. But by being so overly concerned, I was myself. I felt I want them a thousand feet from anything. Um, and there was also four, I believe, U.S. attorneys that said, if you were within a thousand feet, it would be the penalties would be much more. So we kind of were going to mirror that, um, if I recall it right. Um, since I've learned, because I, I said I have one right next to me, I have a dispensary right next to me, and I witnessed a really bad operator. And over time, I realized that it was, I have a very good operator now. In fact, I think we, that operator is somebody that we use as an example for, for best practices. And um, I think they were there, Ms. Patterson and I were going back and forth because people were going in and out of that business, different operators. And this particular one was there, I believe, four months without me even knowing it. And I, my private office faces their business. So it was a huge eye-opener to me that it's all about the operator and making sure we have that operation running properly. And then that'll ensure that we have those sensitive uses uh, protected. And But by placing the 1,000-foot, which we, in my opinion we did by mistake, you concentrate them in two areas, area District 2 and District 6. Over-concentration of them in those areas and their industrial areas. This, these are retail businesses and industrial use. That's not a good thing. They should be in more in, uh, retail-type places, in my opinion. So that's why I'm in favor for it. And I'll move staff recommendation. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Um, is there a second to your motion? Second from Commissioner Kaufman. Um, Mr. Heron, you had a comment? I apologize for the interruption. I was trying to time this. I thought I'd make a clarification for the record. Uh, in the ordinance, we should, I think staff's intent is to recommend a text change consistent with the de description of a tobacco retailer that was discussed earlier. Uh, it currently, in, if you look at section 11 of the ordinance, which proposes to add section 17.228.920 uh, in subsection D for dog, Number three, it has a description of a tobacco retailer that refers to retail square footage. I think staff's recommendation here is to change that to 2% of shelf space as well, just for the record. Thank you, Mr. Heron. Uh, Commissioner Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, you know, good discussion I think we've had so far. Um, I think one of the things that I'd like to do is bring to uh, everyone's attention uh, a brief excerpt of the city council meeting that took place on Tuesday. Um, there was an audit that was conducted by the city auditor that um, basically detailed noncompliance, underreporting of revenues and, and things of, of that nature. Um, adherence to existing regulations, and I believe this would be for current medical marijuana dispensaries that are operating, um, is dubious at best. And what we are deciding to consider here is expansion of uh, the existing uh, medical 
environment that we have now to allow it to be recreational. Um, I, I guess what I would do is I would quote Councilmember Eric Guerin saying, we already have a serious problem. And as um, my esteemed commissioner from the North area indicated, we are in the wild, wild west. And I think we're moving way too quickly on this um, to move this in this fashion. I've heard the arguments um, about 1,000 feet versus 600 feet. I can... I can appreciate them on one perspective, but you know, saying that you can locate closer to schools, closer to parks, moving that down from 1,000 feet to 600 feet, uh, I, I don't think that's going to generally be well received, given the compliance issues that we've had thus far. Um, good operators, bad operators, I get the point and I appreciate it esteemed commissioner from the pocket area. I think the challenge that we have, though, is that if you don't have a good operator, what will it take to get that operator out? And if they are even closer to a school, if they're even closer to a park, um, what the auditor is suggesting is that we would have some difficulty uh, in even ensuring that they're compliant and there was some debate um, on Tuesday with the city council even questioning do we even have the authority to shut them down so there's just a lot of confusion surrounding that so uh, as the motion is on the table I, I clearly I will not be supporting it um, and I would ask my colleagues to do the same thank you vice chair Lucian um, colleagues will uh, we'll take the remainder commission remaining commissioner questions comments but please note there is a motion and it's been seconded uh, Commissioner Bodipa, member. Thank you, uh, Chair Burke. And again, I, I want to echo uh, Commissioner LaFaso's comments about one, uh, I, I truly respect the perspective of all the commissioners here at the dais. I feel like I get a little bit smarter every time I show up to a meeting, so I appreciate um, some clarification on some of the items, particularly the conversation we've had in the past. Um, just to provide some context, I don't, I don't want to keep coming back to the microphone. Um, in the past conversation we had related to cannabis, medical marijuana, uh, the cultivation conversation, and the manufacturing conversation, I actually uh, sided with uh, Commissioner Coville as it related to the overconcentration that is a result of, of, of some of these artificial setbacks from different uh, uh, structures, whether it be parks, schools, what have you. So I, I just want to be clear that I, I definitely understand the unintended consequences. My particular question as it relates to today had to do specifically with the schools component, and I apologize if I didn't articulate that better. Um, I, I think if, if I can recall from the prior conversation, one of the issues that caused over-concentration was we looked at 600, or 600 to 1,000 feet, I can't recall which one, from parks. And then we broke down the specific definition of park types in order to reduce some of the over-concentration that could actually occur to focus on parks that were more focused on uh, children's activities. And I, we also took a look again at the number in terms of the setback. So my question as it related to some more quantitative data, uh, as Commissioner LaFosso brought to the table, having those maps and having that support data in front of us as a part of the decision-making process 
was very helpful to be able to articulate and understand what those unintended consequences actually were. I feel at least as in terms of what we have in front of us right now, it doesn't give us as much context. So for me to be able to look at um, 600 across the board versus 600 across the board with the exception of schools, I just would, I would prefer to have some of that so I could make a more intelligent uh, decision. Uh, and, and maybe I can look in the mirror and, and do some additional research on my own. But I just want to clarify that, and I, I want to thank Commissioner LaFosse for, again, bringing to the forefront that conversation uh, that has come from the past. So, uh, and to Commissioner Lucia's standpoint, I, I, I can definitely empathize um, with many of the points you bring to the table, particularly given the fact that the area that you represent uh, has been impacted in some positive, some negative ways by some past decisions. So, uh, again, I think the conversation is good. I think having some of that information in front of us can allow us to depend less on our past recollection and more on some of the data right right, right there. And that, that was my, my only point. And, and I respect the fact that staff has quite a bit on their plate, but I just wanted to clarify that and wanted to thank uh, commissioners for edifying me further. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. Commissioner Fasa. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Also not going to go around in circles. One, I do want to underscore the point Commissioner Colville made about the 2012 amendment to the 1,000-foot limit was, in fact, uh, driven by a prosecutorial memo from our four U.S. attorneys, and that prosecutorial guidance is out of date with the advent of the Cole memo and I think 2014, don't recall. So the underlying policy is, is doesn't support that anymore. Um, I was going to float the idea of continuing this until we got some more information. What I'd like to see is the draft Title V because it governs the rules. I know staff's not going to like it and I fear council might not like it. Um, so, uh, I won't make that, I won't offer that amendment or make that substitute motion unless I hear some support for it. Um, my last is comment is a question. Um, Ms. Milstein, are you, are you speaking for revenue tonight or is revenue here in their own um, capacity? What I was going to ask about is I noticed the audit that, that Vice Chair Lucian made reference to. I saw it in the newspaper. I must confess when it went on my phone, I didn't realize it was Sacramento specific. Um, my professional history in the area of tax administration teaches me a lot about why there are reasons for revenue collection noncompliance, and I am inclined not necessarily to relate those to other types of noncompliance, like uh, not following uh, adult activity regulations, selling to minors, um, I do believe it is a consequence of the poor regulation we've had of cannabis that we're expecting to cure as of January 1st that we're going to have a lot more rigorous controls on movement and measurement of products that's going to improve compliance. But I wonder if you would, given that much of the focus of us as a land use body is on bad operators, on things that you know, are more nuisance-oriented, crime-oriented, hazard-oriented. Uh, Ms. Milstein, if you could comment on the relationship of the revenue compliance with those other issues, 
for us as a land use body. I think that might be helpful. Thank you for the question. If I don't answer it to your needs, let's get some clarification. So right now, um, or prior to about three, four months ago, um, the revenue division did all of the management relative to operating permits and revenue collection. With the um, creation of the Cannabis and Policy Enforcement Division, that will actually be separated. Um, the Revenue Division will continue to be responsible for the collection of and remittance and collection of the business operations taxes, as well as any permit fees that are paid. But enforcement will be um, overseen by the Cannabis and Policy Enforcement Division. There is an enforcement plan that was approved by Council back in March. Uh, we're bringing a revision of that plan to Council on the 21st. There will be substantive, robust enforcement of both illegal and legal um, cannabis activities. Uh, and that will be a coordinated, coordinated effort. Prior to this, we had a zoning administrator who helped with enforcement of all things not dollar value related to our dispensaries, and we are changing that. Um, right now there are four code enforcement officers. There will be six. There are uh, three building inspectors. There will be four. Uh, there are fire prevention officers involved. It, there are police officers, sergeants. So it is really a um, citywide enforcement team that will be taking over the enforcement of our regulated um, uh, businesses associated with cannabis. So there will be that distinction then between revenue and enforcement. I appreciate that very much. Just one follow-up. When you talk about enforcement, is there more of a focus on legitimate businesses and their weights and measures and their shipping manifests? Are we talking about uh, my language, irredeemably non-compliant businesses, you know, illegal grows and Ill illegal distribution operations? Is, is, what's our enforcement activity really focused on? Really illegal stuff or just, you know, compliant stuff? Oh, it's going to be everything. That's our goal. Our goal is to enforce on the illegal side. Well, first of all, our, our goal is to educate and get all those who want to operate legally um, to the table with the ability to come into the legal, right? I think that's our goal. Uh, our goal for our legal operators on the illegal side is to make sure that we can enforce to the extent that they are not competition for our illegal businesses because we don't want uh, the illicit market to flourish. And then on the enforcement side, what we've really learned, and this is to um, Commissioner Lucian's comments, through the audit process is that we need to do a much better job enforcing those who are regulated and making sure that they are adhering to all of our requirements. And um, we had a meeting, in fact, on the 23rd where we had all of our dispensaries here. It was a mandatory meeting. They had to have either an owner or a manager present. Um, they were sent a certified mail where they fall short as far as that audit was concerned, they were sent electronically that same checklist. They were handed that checklist when they walked into the door to this meeting, and it was made very clear at this meeting that if they want to retain their permit, they need to meet the re regulatory requirements. And we have heard after the fact that everybody understands that there's no more um, noncompliance with our published regulatory requirements. Appreciate that very much. One comment, and then I'll yield, Mr. Chair. I appreciate the wide range of activities. Um, I just, just in my uh, very minor public official capacity here at the city, 
if I was one deep wish I had, it was that we could convince the public that this regulatory regime is ending the kind of illegitimate activity that people really are afraid of in their neighborhood. Whether people are putting their thumb on the scale on, for, for the weight on their shipping manifest is one thing. You know, I myself have had uh, one of those, uh, you know, cannabis oil, hash oil, illegal operations in my basement, and I watched a house, you know, four doors down from me burst into flames, and all my friends within a two-mile radius said, hey, is your house on fire? No, it's the one. So I understand what a lot of people are afraid of, and the extent to which we're able to convince people that that's what we're stopping with the, you know, legitimization of the, of the commerce here, I think that would I, I think that I think that would that's that's a goal that we should aspire to. I think that the hardest thing for us as regulators to understand is, is even if we chose not to regulate as a city, the illegal would still be here, and we would have to have an enforcement plan for the illegal that was here, without regard to whether or not we were enforcing on the legal side. So I think you're absolutely right. We've really got to figure out how to get at the illegal stuff, and that there are people who are scared out there, and rightly so. And we've got to figure out how to address that as a city. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFosso. Commissioner Ogilvie? Thank you. Just um, a follow-up question to my points earlier. Thank you to my fellow commissioners for, for your feedback and insight. Um, I guess just a question for staff on the definition of operations. As I understand what operations means, it's, it's an active process that involves human activity. So there could be product displayed in the storefront, so as long as we don't see a human passing a product to another human that would be within their right to have product display or something in that storefront so you're still looking that from the public street that they would be able to show their products mm -hmm. um, right now that would not be permitted why under this definition or that the, the use is not supposed to be seen from the public right away. But also, I don't, I, I would be curious if under state law that there might be some um, regulation about product display. This talks about operations, not use. So, um, I guess maybe there needs to be a definition of I mean, operations. I, I don't see what's to stop somebody from putting a picture of their product or a sign that says, we sell pot here. Like, in, in part that we limit their signage. So we don't allow excessive signage. And, I mean, again, if, if it's something that what we've been attempting to do with the dispensaries is not to, not to have them show product. Maybe I don't misunderstood the term operations, or maybe that needs to be defined. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Any staff follow-up? Commissioner Koval? I had a question for... The city attorney, you mentioned something a few minutes ago. I didn't quite catch it about the same as the cigarette store. Uh, could you say that again? I apologize. Uh, I 
hesitate to refer to an earlier item, but you may recall that we had an item on tobacco retailers, and staff read into the record a change in the proposed text, and that had to do from square footage to shelving space. In this ordinance in front of you, this also refers to tobacco retailers of a certain descriptive size that would trigger a use permit at the level of the Planning and Design Commission. I believe it is in staff's intent that the text in this be changed to mirror the text that was discussed earlier. So that instead of saying 2% of retail square footage, they mean 2% of its shelving space. But in this case, if it's a dispensary, it, the whole thing is going to be. But this is it. The regulation refers to a tobacco retailer, and the proximity to a tobacco retailer as described triggers review at the commission level. The description of tobacco retailer, staff intends that to mirror the description of tobacco retailer they had in the prior ordinance that they read a change about into the record. And that changes instead of saying, describing it as 15,000 square feet or less, and devotes less than 2% of its retail square footage, or 250 square feet, whichever is less. I think staff wants that to, to read, devotes less than 2% of its shelf space, or 250 square feet, whichever is less. So that's written here now the way you want it, though, right? No, that's a, the text before you has the old language. Staff is re would like to read into the record a change to that text. Okay. That's what I referred to earlier. Okay, and so you want to put it, you want to change the motion to read that in? Did I describe it after the motion or when the, I thought I, I before, the motion. before the motion. I think the motion understood that that text change was proposed by staff. I'm sorry for the confusion. Oh, no, it's fine. And then I, I just want to say also that I, I saw the city council meeting also and read the, uh, uh, went over parts of the uh, audit, and I think that's why we did it so we could see how we can improve because this is an emerging thing, and I think the city and I, I think you did a very good job explaining that we're that you're on it and you're going to be making the changes. So, thank you again. Thank you, Commissioner Kovo. Uh, Vice Chair Lucian and Commissioner Pluckybaum, they're going to take the vote on this item. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. <clears throat> um, to uh, Commissioner LaFaso's point, I would, I would absolutely support um, a continuance of this item, uh, certainly citing his concern as well, uh, that we're not seeing the whole pie at this time. Uh, and so I would put, for, put that forward as a uh, substitute motion. We have a substitute motion with no second. Okay. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair Lucian. Mr. Commissioner Plockybaum. Did I hear a second for the substitute motion? No second. I hear. Um, uh, okay. Well, um, so uh, I think we need to take a vote on the substitute motion because my point was to the original motion, which was to um, second Alexson's idea to uh, eliminate the provision against uh, blacked out windows. So if we get back to that motion, um, I, I'll ask the maker of that motion to accept a friendly amendment. Thank you, Commissioner Plockybaum. We will go with the vote now. 
I don't believe there was a second to Vice Chair Lucian's. Second. second from Commissioner Farrell. Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Uh, a couple questions. Uh, one relative to the main motion. There's been a lot of discussion. I think sometimes when we do have a lot of discussion, the question gets back to, will there be a summary of the discussions, the points of concern uh, relative to the main motion? Will that, how will that be transmitted to the council or to law and ledge for their consideration as they move forward? I'm hoping that we do not need, if, 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 I'm hoping that the response is not to re-articulate, to summarize everything so that you will, the staff will know what, to, what we as a commission would like them to hear. I would transmit that there was a concern that you didn't see the amendments to Title V as part of your vote. There was discussion on continuing it. Then a question relative to the substitute motion. What does, when would it come back? And what implications would it have to the schedule of this item, uh, to law and ledge, and then to the council? Well, it would come back after the item was I think we would go forward to law and ledge with this ordinance because sometimes we go to law and ledge before we go to um, this commission. It's just that we can't go to council without your recommendation. So we would go forward on the 14th to law and ledge. Then um, the law and ledge language probably, however, I don't know if when we would be available to give them that it might have to wait until after the 14th on the Title V language for them to see Title V. Oh. It's going to be published the Friday before. Um, but there's, I don't know if we can go to the commission meeting of the 16th or not. Um, it would be published the Friday before we could would be able to publish the language the their language comes out their report comes out at the same time for the 16th correct the Friday or oh, so I, which what? is reports that are being done now which we'd have to get special dispensation from <laughs> the powers that be to do this. Um, basically, we'd be writing it, yeah, it may be the 16th. If not the 16th, then it would be in December, which would be after the 28th, which wouldn't be, which would not be good because then they wouldn't have a recommendation before them on the 28th on this. So they would have to continue um, discussion. And, and the hope would be that the discussion on law and ledge may inform this body and help it make a decision because there's not much else forthcoming. Is, is that sort of what I'm hearing is that that may help us make a decision? Law and ledge discussion may inform us? 
But I'm not sure you're going to be able to report back to us in well, time. Well, the law and legislation discussion is going, there's going to be discussion of both ordinances. Of changes to Title V and changes to Title 17. Okay, so. The purview to um, make recommendations on Title V. So is there time for us, for us to reconsider between law and ledge and council action? I'm not hearing there's an opportunity to do it, that. It would be. We have to PFP on the 21st. It, I, I don't know that it could happen before okay. the, it I, would be okay, uh, so there, virtually there, impossible, I think. Okay, so the answer is simplified is no. Uh, because the council needs to act on date certain. Yes, that there it is. So, uh, I think with that line of questioning, I will not be supporting substitute motion. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Commissioner LaFosso. Thank you, Mr. Chair. That staff will proceed to law and ledge regardless of what we do tonight is quite instructive. I hope all my stakeholder friends who are either watching or listen to the tape will take note of that. Um, just for practical issues, Mr. Heron, um, just uh, just uh, understand the Brown Act. If there is a posted agenda of amendments to Title Five plus whatever else on posted to the meeting for Law and Ledge for November 14th, and generally our stuff gets posted on November 9th or November 10th for a November 16th. Um, uh, Planning and Design Commission meeting, and I'll throw a curveball that Saturday the 10th is a holiday. Um, Touche. Um, is it sufficient uh, notice under the Brown Act for our staff report posted on November 9th and November 10th to contain the staff report to the Law and Ledge, the Law and Ledge Committee, and then whatever we do on the 16th following whatever Law and Ledge does? the agenda notice is complied with by what was posted prior to the Law and Ledge Committee apropos to Law and Ledge on November 9th and 10th. Does that meet Brown Act requirements? I don't know off the top of my head. I kind of got lost in that long question. I apologize. Yeah, you know, when you're splitting hairs, it's really hard to be. Anyway, I'm, that seems to me that's the only way we get the matter to a continuance because there's only one commission meeting between November 14th and November 28th, as Ms. Patterson stated. So um, the short answer is you, you, you don't know that works. Not off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, um, for context, and I, I'm not suggesting anything here, but I would remind the commission that uh, uh, the rules on a text amendment are different from our rules on a private development project. Uh, we want a recommendation from you, and we stress it. Uh, but the rules also provide, as you may recall in, in past matters, that if you cannot pass a, get enough votes to pass a motion for a recommendation, we report that to council as to what happened on the, the failure of the votes. I, I just wanted you to understand that uh, there was that legal difference in, in our approval of text amendments. I, I appreciate it very much. I have many friends who call me up thinking that we're like a legislative committee and we can bottle something up indefinitely. And I nicely try to explain to them we don't have that much power. So I appreciate you saying that. Again, that staff will proceed regardless of what we do is instructive. Um, so uh, um, 
I know there's other commissioner issues beyond mine about the text of Title V. They all intersect because they relate to fundamental issues like the what, what the sites are going to look like and what the concentration is going to be. Um, I appreciate the motion, uh, Vice Chair Lucian. I, uh, some of these issues I don't want to belabor, so I was on the fence about it. But uh, on balance, we just we just need the acquiescence in this to council. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Lafaso. Um, with a second of the substitute motion, we'll we'll take that up now. So that's the the substitute motion from Vice Resolution, a second from Commissioner Frell. So we'll take that up for a vote. Commissioner Ogilvie, no. Commissioner Yee, no. Juan Connolly, aye. Rogers, no. Buckybaum, no. Carroll, aye. Lindsay? No. Hoffman? No. Coville? No. Faso? No. Odebo Memba? No. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? No. Motion fails. Commissioner Yee? Ah, there we go. Uh, I would believe that the, most, the process would now to be uh, consideration vote on the main motion. And um, I, I'm, I'm not sure how formal this needs to be, and I think we sort of have this dilemma often. And to the maker and the seconder of the motion, maybe it's just a simple request, because I don't want to get too far in detail and relive the last hour, hour and a half worth of conversation. I would ask that there might be a more robust reporting of this discussion to Law and Ledge and ultimately to Council uh, because this is going to move forward regardless of whether we have an action or not, whether the main motion passes or not, or we move forward with no recommendation. But I think this discussion is worthy of more than a simple one or two sentence summary. And so uh, to the maker and to the seconder, I would maybe have that as a request and not necessarily as a condition of uh, embodying the motion unless you would like it to be. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. I'm fine with that. Thank you, Commissioner Coughlin. Thank you, Commissioner Koval. Commissioner Pluckybaum? The maker of the motion be open to the um, suggestion to, to not block out the windows. I uh, I really think that we should stick with it the way it is now. I, I really do believe that that's a. I mean, the police aren't here to talk about it, but I think I think that's a concern, a security concern of theirs now. I really believe that that's why they're doing it, and I think that maybe over time, as we get the the criminality out of this and becomes more socially acceptable that we'll probably see that but I have a feeling now that's probably not a good idea don't believe they'd be prohibited from blocking out the windows for security concerns as a voluntary measure in the interim uh, it would just mean that we wouldn't have to come back and amend this in the future to not require them to 
Okay. I'm okay with it. Are you? Any comments from staff on that? Thank you, Commissioner Pockybaum. Commissioner LaFossa? Can I, excuse Sorry. me, I just want to make sure what the amendment is. Commissioner Pockybaum, do you mind? To strike the requirement that they have blacked out windows. So, so do you, number one, it would read cannabis dispensary operations must be within a fully enclosed building, period. Take out and must not be visible from the public right away. Correct. Thank you, everyone. Um, Commissioner LaFossa? Yes, thank you. Um, not to belabor what, Commissioner, you said, but I feel like we had this same conversation seven weeks ago when we talked about cannabis production, and I did read the city staff report, and I can state explicitly what Commissioner Yee asked then, what you answered, and what in fact transpired. With that background, apropos to Commissioner, what, what are you going to say on the staff report? I'm going to re-listen to the tape. <laughs> okay, can I give you a few tips? One, uh, concerns about lack of substantiation for the distance requirement. Two, Lack of, lack of clarity on definitions of the sensitive uses. Three, lack of specificity under the underlying rules related to Title V, including uh, the application of the cap to storefront and deliver only dispensaries, the, uh, the, the site character of delivery only dispensaries, and the potential rules for consolidation of delivery-only dispensary conditional use permits with cannabis production uh, conditional use permits. I believe that is a rough summarization of what we talked about. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner LaFossa. Vice Chair Lucian? Mr. Uh, excuse me, Commissioner LaFossa. What number did you leave off on? Four or five? Mr. What question? What number did you leave off on? Oh, you, you mean I was counting my points and I lost? I must confess. Oh, oh, you want to add one? I'm sorry, I wasn't. I believe I, 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 believe I stated five points. Six, seven, and eight. Damning audit report. Include that in there as well. Commissioner Cole, before I go to the vote. No. Well, with that, uh, we'll, we'll take the vote on the main motion with the additional recommendations. Commissioner Bodipo member? No. Lafaso? Aye. Oville? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? No. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. E? Aye. Ogilvy? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? No. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Before we go to item number five, we'll take a, just a quick 10-minute break. We'll readjourn at 8.10.
sorry I missed you when you That's teed okay. up. That's <laughs> okay. I was slow. <laughs>
We're, we're going to restart the meeting in one minute. Thank you, everyone. We'll restart the meeting. We'll go to item number item number five, the mix the mixed use tower no, noise deviation. Any commissioners need to recuse themselves? Seeing none, we'll begin with the staff presentation. Uh, Mr. Sykes. Good evening, commissioners and Chair Burke. I uh, I'm happy to be here this evening to present this item to you. I'm going to be as succinct as I can this evening, but I at least wanted to uh, first share a piece of eye candy uh, as we've gone through and built out this ESC space. So, uh, Ms. Cosgrove, if you could please, and maybe drop the lights if you could. Uh, wanted to give you a, a the, the small piece of eye candy here, and, and quite honestly, the projectors, and I'm pretty sure your screens don't do it justice, um, but the blacks, we don't have any HDR here, so this is a... <laughs> Um, this is uh, basically the finished product, product that we're talking about this evening. There's a couple little minor things and tweaks going on, um, but ultimately this is the space that, that we're dealing with within the ESC. Um, the hotel uh, up front, I'll get my little pointer here. So very, very quickly, we have all, the, our, all of our retail uh, is going to be at the base as well as the second level. The pool deck is actually shown up here. The King's offices are further up, and then the hotel space uh, continues around this area up into the larger grand ballroom area. This area of, um, I guess, basically a, a checkered um, portion of the, uh, the mass, that's all hotel. And then up above that, that is all residential. So I thought, I thought I'd use it as, as context because um, you all had seen this uh, at one point uh, several years ago, and so you finally get a good good eye of what we're trying to create here along with the arena. So that being said, I'm going to be very, very succinct in what we're here for this evening. Uh, we're here for two noise deviations to Chapter 8, uh, uh, 160, or Chapter 8.68160. Uh, basically, this is dealing with two items. Uh, the first item is is that there is a um, sorry. there's a decibel rating in September and October. Uh, there's a odd uh, thing that happens here in the uh, the city of Sacramento where we have some uh, air differentials which change how sounds transmitted. Uh, so that portion of the code allows for only two decibels less. Um, so 96 instead of the standard 98 throughout the rest of the year. So both in the, um, the months of October 
or September and October, that decibel level goes down to 68. Um, the rest of the year, it's 98. What the first deviation is for, and I'm sorry if I'm going a little bit backwards from my chart that's on page 13, that, that'll probably help clarify it a little bit for you. Um, we're asking for basically a year-round 98 decibels uh, to be allowed, uh, not just the 96 between the two months and 98 the rest of the year. So 98 across the entire year, all months. The second deviation that we're here for is for the hours of operation for out, uh, outdoor amplified sound. Um, the current code is 10 p.m. on Sunday through Thursdays and then Friday and Saturday till 11 p.m. The extension or the deviation or yes, the deviation that we're, we're here for this evening is extending those hours Sunday through Thursday until midnight instead of 10 p.m. And then Friday and Saturday extending it to 2 a.m. instead of 11 p.m. So there was a small minor mathematical error uh, in the changes requested. I'd said to four hours over the, the code limit and it's only three hours. So that's about as concise as I can be. I have, um, I'm here, any questions you may have? Uh, the owner's uh, representatives are here if there are questions of them, and I'm available for comments. Thank you, Mr. Seitz. Uh, we have a couple of commissioner questions. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I just have a, a few quick questions. So uh, first of all, the 98 uh, decibel, is that uh, include uh, with the ambient noise uh, Included, right? It's not on top of the freeway noise and everything. It, no, it's it's not it's not stacked above it. So it's not 98 decibels over, let's say, the city standard, which is 62 within this area. So it's not 98 plus the 62 to be 100 something. It's 98 straight across the board. That's ambient noise across the board. Okay, thank you. And then, um, so besides this, the city noise uh, ordinance uh, limit at the, uh, the sensitive receptor, which is at the residence, then <coughs> cannot exceed 55 or 50, depends on day or night. Um, that is not to be um, waived. That requirement is still required, right? The 55 for residential? Right. This is a mixed-use structure, and so although we could um, – we could get down the path of saying that this is residential in this location. Uh, the ESC SPD that was created for this area was designated and designed as a mixed-use, 24/7 type experience, and therefore we don't, we aren't, um, we aren't viewing the code as the residential section uh, that has the 55 decibel. That's typically for your R1s, R2s, something that's more of like a suburban traditional type neighborhood. But how about uh, the R1 zone, like uh, um, uh, around it, this uh, um, um, ESC zone? So uh, the ESC is basically in the center of C3 zone. It's, it's all uh, down to its um, uh, central city SPD, or sorry, central business district, sorry. It's C3 is all central business district. So surrounding this this area until you get to the point of residential, which is much, much further out from where the uh, where the uh, the decibel contours go, 
it, it should be mitigated by that point where it hits residential. Well, it should be mitigated or not, but then uh, does the requirements still apply? At the R1 zone adjacent to here, that uh, uh, when they measure at their doorstep, it shouldn't be exceeding the city limit. Correct. It does. Uh, it, it should not exceed. It should not exceed that. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And then uh, talk about uh, uh, so the hotel guests and the residents above the. <clears throat> how would this uh, uh, deviation impact them? Um, do you have any acoustic design that uh, you could share with us and to make sure it doesn't impact the, the guests in the hotel or residence? Absolutely. So that was one of staff's concerns um, while reviewing this, and we spoke both with the, um, the ownership as well as uh, the uh, ESA who did the, uh, the noise study on this as they're, maintain they're required and maintain uh, they're required and they need to maintain an acoustic uh, staff on board throughout this. Uh, it's one of the mitigation measures in the EIR uh, that was approved uh, quite some time ago. All that being said, um, the hotel operator is going to be very, very cognizant of the noise levels uh, within this area because, quite honestly, market conditions are going to prevail. If you have really loud noise, people can't get to sleep, they're not going to come to your hotel. So they're being very cognizant of that. Okay. Uh, that's good. And then my last question uh, right now is uh, I'm looking at the map two pro project maximum contours mm -hmm. um, in the staff report. So I noticed that uh, um, the contour seems that the West Sac, the residential neighborhood um, in front of the uh, right adjacent to the river will be impacted. And then um, the end results is uh, um, at their residential area it will exceed most likely their uh, local uh, ordinance, the noise ordinance of West Sacramento. So I wonder that uh, what's the process? Were they notified about this process and what? Uh no, it, so as part of, uh, part of that mapping that you see on there, the noise contours that end up over on that side, uh, I believe it's Yolo County that oversees, um, is it Yolo? Thank you. Uh, Yolo County oversees uh, West Sacramento. They did not have any of the buildings uh, and those elements in place to show a, a true measure as to how sound and, and the acoustic levels build across the, uh, the river. So albeit this is somewhat inaccurate as it gets to West Sacramento, there will be some impact. Um, but knowing that this is not going to be a nightly occurrence, this is not going to happen every day of the week. We can't enforce anything over into West Sacramento, but we are trying to be good neighbors in the sense that we've looked at the issues and the the length and the depth of the contours as it proceeds across the river, and we are comfortable with, with where we are. We, we did not study West Sacramento code. Nor did you model it accurately, so you did not really know the, the real impact to them. That's what you're saying. It, to West Sacramento, correct. Okay, got it. Thank you. Uh, I yield. Thank you, Mr. <clears throat> Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner LaFossa. Thank you, Mr. Chair. A few quick questions and just a <clears throat> quick commercial for the applicant. I've been to the bar. I think it's called Revival. And uh, uh, somehow in the way the design, <laughs> when you walk in the entryway, the view out to the, to the patio gives you a perfectly framed view of the Tower Bridge. It works really well. That notwithstanding. Um, 
Can you just help me understand the difference between deviation and variance? I know there's a paragraph in the staff report that talks about the standard hardship versus consistency, but I was always under the – in the back of my mind, I'm trying to understand why we had a variance on the, the MLS stadium and a deviation here, and I always thought that deviations were smaller in magnitude than variances, and notwithstanding the legal standard, that's a more, you know, practically applicable difference. Am I on the right track? I'm going to defer to my city attorney. Well, I suppose I can't really refer to anything without some legal context. But for, for the noise ordinance, there's three relief valves. There's a possibility of a conditional use permit from a zoning administrator. Those are for the one-off events, that are usually limited to only three days. Uh, then there are variances, which, as you mentioned, that's the traditional hardship type of analysis and uh, as part of that request uh, and approval there has to be a plan for achieving maximum compliance uh, given the the assumption that there won't be compliance fully but there has to be a plan for maximum compliance over a particular period of time but that's a traditional kind of hardship case the deviation section is more about due to the nature design and location of the facility where the, uh, let's call it the noise is going to take place, it can handle the request for deviations in this respect, the decibels and the, and the hours, without substantially increasing the likelihood of violations of the rest of the provisions of the code that's trying to protect. So it's the difference between a variance and a deviation really has to do with uh, a deviation is about the nature and design and the location of the source can handle this whereas a variance is uh, an application that says, I can't comply because of hardship reasons, but I have a plan for maximum compliance, and here's how I attempt to achieve that. So it doesn't, it's not really a quantitative difference, but if I, w without belaboring, if I understand you, the, the responses that Mr. Seitz gave about mixed use, entertainment, uh, ESC, SPD, and central business district, all those, well, consistency arguments that Mr. Seitz made, those are squarely in the deviation box. Correct. That's why he's making those arguments, those, those points. Correct. Okay. Um, this is remedial sound. So the map two on page 11, which I think is also figure two on page 26, is that one that's got all the jagged colors, the yellows and the greens? Th that map tells me how far one can hear sound of a certain decibel level. So the, the yellow at 55 is that line, and if it's... Uh, Orange or yeah, or in the sixty seventy five. It's that that that's what that means. Correct. Okay, I I have trouble with those. Uh, I'm um, I'm supposed to be able to hear this. This is fascinating. Um, last quick comment, just apropos to the question about West Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it's half a point, half a question. I guess uh, um, given all of the entertainment activities at the barn in West Sacramento, I suppose we already have a de facto reason for reciprocity with with the city of Sacramento as it relates to noise. That was a friendly comment. Um, but uh, does that have any practical application, or is that just underscore the, the, the sensitive, sensitivity to neighbor point you made? I think a little bit of both. Okay. Since it was more point than question, I'll let it lie. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Commissioner LaFaso. I have one question, one silly question. The staff work, you're talking about noise. Mm -hmm. Is it people audition for American Idol? Is it smooth jazz? Like what? what? <laughs> I, I think mostly, if in this case, it's mostly dictated by what's 
what's proposed by the, if they have a, let's say they have a, a wedding uh, up at Revival. It could be anything. I mean, we've all been to weddings. We know what that what that's about and what that, you know, what that entails. So from that point, the music's all over the board. Um, you know, it could be from country to jazz to, you know, pop back and forth, wherever it ends up. Um, more of the ambient quote-unquote noise that's uh, provided on, on the lower level speakers, um, both down at the ground level, uh, king's level, um, and the hotel level, is probably going to be more of your, you know, smooth contemporary jazz, something of, of that sort, something that kind of matches the area uh, in that event. That's ultimately going to be left up to the operator of the hotel. Uh, one a question from Commissioner Bodipa member. Thanks, Chair Burke. Uh, I'll make this real quick, and this might be more for Mr. Heron. Um, in terms of the content of what's being <coughs> amplified, mm -hmm. is it is it subject to? I guess when you're dealing with profanity, or if you're dealing with things of that sort, it, are there restrictions on what? I guess what type of amplification can occur, given that it is a public plaza space. Um, and does that vary based on the hours of the evening? Or, and again, that might not be an answer we have right now, but just for me, it's more informational. It, it effectively defaults to the code. The code already has provisions built into it for you know what what type of things could be amplified. Uh, if there are issues, you know, to that end, um, you know, folks can still call up, you know, three one one, the police, what have you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Uh, there is ownership on the upper levels. Yes. And I would imagine, usually when I think of uh, uh, notice to owners, I think horizontal, but it goes vertical too. So to those owners, uh, they were notified, advised of this change. Uh, being as part of the ownership group, they're uh, very aware of what's, what's proposed there. Okay, so the owner of a condominium has been advised of this proposed change, and I believe that there has not been any objections raised by that group? I have not received any. Great, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Seeing no further Commissioner comments or questions, we'll go to public comment on this item. Any public comment for item number five? Seeing none. <laughs> we'll go to Commissioner uh, Motions and other things. Commissioner Pluckybaum. Second. Thank you. So it was a uh, motion from Commissioner Pluckybaum with staff recommendation, a second for Commissioner Yee. Commissioner Yee. Ogilvy. Aye. Juan Connolly. Aye. <clears throat> Rogers? Aye. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Kaufman? Aye. Coville? Aye. Basso? Aye. Odipo Memba? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. Our last item of the evening is uh, item number six, and that's just a review and comment, and that's the review of the draft 2017 electric vehicle strategy. Uh, we have uh, Jennifer Benema, our sustainability manager for the Department of Public Works. Thank you very much. 
Any commissioner recusals or ex parte conversations? Thank you, uh, uh, Chair Burke. I just want to convey, I, d I don't believe this requires me to recuse myself, but I'll, I'll defer to the city attorney, but um, my primary employer has been engaged in, in some of the strategy uh, processes identified in, in, in this report, uh, and I directly have, have been involved, but have not uh, generated any revenue benefits from that action. Uh, Mr. Heron, I, I would imagine it's okay for me to provide a comment on this as well. If not, I defer to you. I couldn't hear everything you I said. I apologize. Sorry. Uh, my primary employer has been involved in some of the strategies and processes identified in the EV report, um, and I have been in, involved as well. I just wanted to confirm whether or not I should recuse myself from this conversation or whether... Well, it is always difficult to answer conflict questions uh, off the cuff and on the dais, but uh, given the nature of this policy, uh, I, uh, I find it uh, extremely difficult to think that there would be a reasonably foreseeable material financial effect for you uh, under the Political Reform Act and the regulations. This is going to be a – it may go nowhere, but it may – possibly turn into regulations as well. But uh, at this juncture, I don't see enough facts based on your circumstances to suggest that it affects your uh, your employer's uh, money enough to, or uh, your personal finances. But that's with the caveat of uh, uh, just hearing about it now. And I, and I apologize again for not bringing this up to you before. Uh, and, and based on prior conversation, that was my understanding that it wouldn't, but I felt it would be fair. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Bodipa, member. Good evening, Chair and Commissioners. I'm pleased to be here. Jennifer Venema with the Department of Public Works. And I can keep this brief. I've got a presentation here, but really just excited to get some input and share some of the work we've been doing and some of the work we hope you will have opportunity to see in the future. Let's just see if I can get my slides to Maybe I cannot. So, what I'll be presenting tonight is essentially a recap on efforts to date. I'll provide an overview of the strategy and then outline next steps for us. of background, this is where the city has been very involved to date. The general plan establishes our overarching climate goals, and within the general plan policy framework, we do have adopted policies that direct us to promote zero emission vehicles and electric vehicles, as you can see on the slide. However, to date, a lot of our work has it's been successful, it's been all over the place, and we haven't had a clear strategy for bringing it together. So that's a lot of what we're here to do with the strategy tonight. We've had a long history in electric vehicle leadership. Going back to 1994, City Council first adopted the EV parking program to provide free or reduced parking for drivers of EVs in our city parking garages. And this is our primary customer-facing EV program to date. We've got over 300 participants in that program. And if anyone's in the market for an EV, you can still charge for free at one of our city garages, as in get a free parking pass and plug in your car for free. 
We also have a fleet sustainability policy committing us to 30% alternative fuels. Currently, we're at 39% alternative fuels in our vehicles and our equipment. And of these vehicles, about 12 qualify as zero emission, meaning all battery electric or hydrogen. We've also been doing a lot of coordination and collaboration with other agency and community partners in the region, most recently working with entities such as SMUD, Sacramento County, and SACOG to develop the first regional infrastructure readiness plan for the region. We've also been implementing a lot on the ground recently. You have probably heard of the Our Community Car Share Program. This was funded by a grant from the California Air Resources Board. It was the first low-income EV car share program in the state, and this is bringing eight all-electric Kia Souls to affordable housing projects in the area. We're hosting two stations at Sacramento Valley, at the Sacramento Valley Station, um, and the program's providing 100 free memberships. In terms of actual land use changes on the ground, um, with SMUD, we are hosting a DC fast charger at the Sacramento Valley Station. And earlier this summer, council approved the first curbside EV charging installation for our community. So that means that's electric vehicle charging infrastructure, basically on the sidewalk for cars parking there on the street. The other big item that's been pushing a lot of our efforts is the approval of significant electric vehicle investments for our region. The slide says this is pending CARB approval, but approval has actually now happened. Uh, pursuant to the largest automaker settlement in history, Volkswagen is committed to investing $800 million in California for zero-emission vehicle initiatives, including infrastructure and programs can include education as well. They're spending that $800 million over a 10-year period for investment cycles. The first cycle has been approved of $200 million, and of that, nearly 25% is designated for investment in Sacramento. And that's a very near-term investment. It's, it's a, large, a large win for the region. Um, they're spending those funds by mid-2019. Primary focus of their program is electric vehicle car share for this first 44 million. There are other initiatives they've identified, but we do expect to see concentrated charging stations or charging hubs throughout the community. And a priority of this investment is to benefit disadvantaged and low-income communities, as shown in the map here. In terms of what you may expect to see, this could include deployments like we've seen in Portland with an all-electric avenue where there is very visible charging infrastructure in the street. There's also other cities that are launching electric car share like Indianapolis and L.A. Um, in Indianapolis, that's about 200 charging stations throughout the community. And so we've been doing a lot of work to understand new car share models and what that means and how the city can facilitate it. Moving to the strategy, the real intent is to pull together all of the city's existing work and the new opportunities to date to chart our vision. Um, we're very excited by all these opportunities, and we want to ensure we have our goals and our actions in order to really maximize local benefit. 
what the strategy would do is it's serving to implement the general plan by establishing more specific EV goals and quantitative targets. The horizon for this plan is to achieve implementation of those targets, working towards those goals by 2025, but it does set out the action staff will initiate by 2020 to get there. And just to touch on it at a high level, a large piece of this is communicating the benefits of electric vehicles. Transportation contributes about half of the greenhouse gas emissions in Sacramento. And it, these cars, they're cheaper to drive, they're cheaper to operate and maintain, and they're better for the environment. So part of this is recognizing the city's role, not just in adopting policy, but also in helping to communicate that to the community. Strategy also recognizes the role of EVs within this overall hierarchy of transportation where our existing framework does really focus on we, we want to get people out of cars. And this is a relationship we want to continue to focus on with the upcoming general plan update. For now in the EV strategy, we thought it was important to identify that ZEVs are an answer, but they're not the only answer. So overall, the city's working to get people out of cars, but where vehicles are needed, whether that's a bus, heavy-duty freight, or personal vehicles, there really is an opportunity for ZEVs, and that's what we're hoping to work towards. Strategy also allows us to look a little more closely at distribution of infrastructure and characteristics of EV usage to date, only about 1% of households in Sacramento own an electric vehicle. What this map shows with the green dots are the location of existing public and workplace chargers. So those are mostly concentrated in the downtown serving workplaces. What you see in blue are low-income areas, and the red and the orange signifies disadvantaged communities. So really the infrastructure is not that well dispersed, and an opportunity and, and a real priority for us to maximize with the investment is ensuring those benefits of EVs can be experienced by, by all of our communities. And it's trying to focus on that more equitable distribution and recognizing challenges, uh, for instance, with multifamily housing stock and how, how we can provide access. The strategy does lay out that new vision, trying to provide a more complete picture of what EVs mean, both in terms of environmental benefit and social and economic opportunity. In order to provide us with a strategy and with that action framework, uh, the goals are supported by a series of quantitative performance targets, and those are targets we continue to work on, and we're really collaborating with our partners to try and get them right. The challenge here is the technology is evolving, and no one knows exactly the answers, so we're doing what we can. But in order to get there, we have identified a series of actions that the city would implement around these six topics within the plan, ranging from community infrastructure on private development to how the city runs its fleet. Here's an example of targets. We did get these updated in the plan that was posted publicly. So the new target for workplace chargers is actually um, about 2,200 chargers, which would equate to um, you know, a significant percentage of households with EVs right now. It's Again, only about 1% of households. So these are in progress. And to implement this, the actions 
are pretty comprehensive, but it recognizes we can do more by telling people more, by providing information, and also where we have control or maybe could address barriers to infrastructure access, like putting charging in the right-of-way. We had our first community workshop on these topics on October 19th. We were so excited to get over 50 folks show up to speak to some of these issues and identify interests. Uh, some items that came up was just lack of information on charging. Also, the issue of folks interested in charging in alleys or how to get access when they don't have dedicated street parking. So this was just the start. The strategy really lays out our plan to continue engagement on these topics. And in the near term, we have released a survey to our parking program participants to understand incentives and motivators. And UC Davis also succeeded in securing funding through SB1 to do a profile of EV usage and trends within our, within our community. So we're very much excited for that and to get more data and metrics from the effort. With that, we were working towards taking an updated EV strategy based on public comments and comment we may receive tonight to the City Council. We were targeting November 28th. My colleague just informed me that that date is, is on lockdown for cannabis items. So this schedule may be changing, but we do, we do expect to get to Council by the end of the year. And the real intent with that is establishing our city goals and our action plan before Electrify America begins significant investments. And with our launch to begin soon afterwards, um, most first and foremost with the release of curbside charging guidance in early 2018. So that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to take questions and your feedback. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple of commissioner questions. Uh, commissioner, sorry, Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, Commissioner Burke. Um, I wanted to point out on one of your slides that uh, examined the <clears throat> city from a uh, economic lens with respect to disadvantaged communities. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the, uh, it looked like on one of the maps that um, the, I don't know if, some of the lines look like census tracts, and mm -hmm. I can't tell at the bottom south of Meadowview Road, but it looks like the um, at the present time, the Delta Shores community that is being built, um, the commercial side at least, but the residential 5,000 or so units that are soon to be built, <clears throat> is designated as... Um, a disadvantaged and low-income community. Is that correct? I believe that's what the map data is telling us based on, and I believe the sources there are Calenviro screen from the state and the, the census. So I would have to confirm with GIS, but I think that is the current data. Okay, so I, I would just quickly point out that um, I don't envision that <clears throat> um, the build-out of that community, although I'm not as clear on the, um, the boundaries of the community relative to that disadvantaged 
uh, shading on the map. But um, the build-out of that community is probably not going to, in the end or once it gets moving, um, be disadvantaged or low income. And so I guess my question to you would be, um, relative to when the funding is to be dispersed, um, how frequently are the maps updated? Well, this map was created as a reference point to try and get our hands around the issues. Um, during implementation, we would continue to look at new data as it was available. I'm not sure of the state schedule to update the Calenviro screen scores. And with the census data, I mean, that would probably be pending the next American Community Survey. I would need to confirm that with staff. But I think the also one thing to note with the investments, uh, they are focused on sites where they can have minimum 10-year control of the site and sites that are turnkey. So I think in terms of where we expect near-term investment to go, um, I don't know that that would be a big priority for the first investment cycle, if that answers your question. That's fine. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Lucian. Uh, Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Burke. A uh, couple comments, a couple questions. First of all, on the equity issues that you've outlined in your presentation, uh, very supportive of you continuing those and keeping those at the forefront of your thinking on every issue that you you deal with on this. This is going to be a major change, and that sort of equity concern is critical. Um, so you've been working with SMUD, and right now we have a small percentage of vehicles on the road that are electric. Is there a point at which grid capacity becomes an issue? What we've been told from EV experts in the space, my understanding is it's, it's not an issue. And I think the thinking is as well as it's, we're so far behind on current infrastructure for EVs. It's just there's such a need, and they're focused on churning out incentives to the private sector. So I have I don't have any indication that capac electrical capacity is a concern. Okay. Things are going to change a lot in the next 5, 10 years, and it takes a long time to cite power plants and to, you know, get substations and do all those sorts of things. Um, it's probably worth having a conversation about sort of what percentages of, of vehicles or electric start to put some pressure on because there's a lot of lead time that's necessary there. And as part of a strategy, that should certainly be incorporated given your partnerships with SMUD. Um, Question, I didn't see any reference to autonomous vehicles in here um, at all. Uh, my sense is that you know, that's going to pick up very quickly, and it could radically change the ownership patterns uh, around cars, which could affect where you have charging and what that looks like. 
right? I mean, you could have parking garages that are just charging stations for zombie cars, right? Um, but I didn't see anything in the in the strategy about that. Did I did I miss that, or are you? Yeah, it, it's a great point. We've got an action, a few actions that do call for looking at that relationship of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, and I believe that's under section five of the plan. So under actions in category 5.3 to spur local innovation and enterprise, we have some actions there encouraging autonomous vehicle efforts to prioritize pilots for shared electric vehicles and also considering charging needs of automated fleets. So it's, it is a real opportunity. And so trying to put our hands around that issue. We don't exactly know how soon or what it will look like as it shakes out, but what we want to do is maximize benefit. And going back to that framework, our main focus is on you know, reducing car trips. So a lot of strategies in the plan emphasize electric car sharing. So we are looking at how to reduce ownership in addition to the AVs. I would just say that that needs to be a very high priority because I think the answer to when is much sooner than we all think. Um, and we don't want to get caught behind uh, on that. On the, on the charging stations that you have, is that publicly owned infrastructure or is that it's private? This includes both public and private infrastructure as long as it's accessible to the public. Okay. So how does the private stuff work? What's the revenue stream for the private? It, it varies. There's different models. So typically now at retail markets, you go in, the infrastructure, the charger is owned and operated by a company, whether that's, whether that's a a utility like SMUD, we have a few of those, or someone like EVGO, who the city's partnering with, and they own and operate the infrastructure, the user plugs in, and they pay for the service. They pay for the charging. Um, at certain public spots, and maybe a handful of other retail locations, the infrastructure may be owned by the site host, and they're providing the power free of charge, which is the instance in the city parking garages. Is there, I, I know this is going to sound like an odd question because, you know, most of the digital stuff you see today, the revenue stream is ad-related. Is there any revenue stream that's ad-related? There these? is actually a company that has approached the city and we've been talking with, Volta, and their model is to provide free charging because their charging is attached to a digital advertising kiosk. And that's how they raise their revenues, and they provide charging free of service. Um, they are interested in constructing in the city's right-of-way, so that's something we're discussing and looking at with city staff. Okay, so that's something clearly that we would have some interest in, right, because it would affect the pedestrian experience. What are the size of those ads? Where do they... You know, where do they go? What do they look like? Um, okay, let me leave it there. Thank you. It's a nice presentation. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner LaFossil. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, again, thank you for your presentation. Given the hour, I appreciate how concisely you got through your presentation. 
Um, appreciate the high-level point about half of our greenhouse gas emissions being from vehicles, and I should say, someone should say with the federal scientist report released today, that should gal galvanize our attention. Um, I won't steal Commissioner Bodipa Memba's uh, thunder, but I, I'm under the impression that SMUD's very focused on the grid implications of electric vehicles, and I will endorse uh, Commissioner Kaufman's comment about engaging with SMUD. Um, I want to drill down on a few aspects of the um, – I'm very focused on the, the individual uh, residential charging, leaving aside for a second through charging in public places. This is an odd question. Do you, do you have any insight on whether individuals are comfortable buying electric vehicles knowing that they can charge it at work or charging it in a city garage, not having a charging station in their home? Or do you know for a fact that people only buy vehicles if they confidently believe they can charge them at home? Any insight on that? Yeah. we. What we do know is that only about 20% of charging takes place in a public setting. So most of the early adopters charge at home, and that's what SMUD expects to continue to be the case. That's their assumption. However, we do have research by academic institutions and others, and I can't cite the exact proportions, but that having charging available at work significantly does increase the likelihood of purchasing an EV. Anecdotally, um, case in point, I do have an electric vehicle and I live in multifamily without dedicated charging. So it's an example and there's certainly others, but what we've heard from public comment is there is a real interest in charging for those residential applications. So it's, it's something we are exploring and the plan provides a few suggestions on how to do that. Part of the focus <coughs> is on getting it into new multifamily construction and ensuring we have it publicly available at garages and where appropriate um, in the right of where other high opportunity locations. I, I followed you. Um, I understand how challenging that is, but I, I thought that was a very good answer and I'm going to give you the gold star for the most responsive answer of the evening. Um, but I do want to focus on multifamily. Um, I followed the discussion about the, um, the curbside charging station that somebody might want. It's come up a couple times in our projects, the idea of how many, um, you know, electric charging stations there ought to be in a multifamily development. Um, sort of a two question, so I'll focus. Do you, how do you figure out what's the right amount of charging stations? I mean, I, I mean I'll offer an anecdote. I have a friend who lives in Oakland who's an early adopter, and um, I mean, he's on his second electric car already. And uh, he, his habits have changed substantially because of all of the free charging opportunities. But in the last year or so, he's starting to get cranky because the free charging opportunities aren't as, uh, aren't as available as they used to be because, of course, there are more electric cars. There's something about, you know, the, the supply of, you know, free public electric chargers relative to the number of users that I've seen in this one experience. Are you all, are you all envisioning that once you've encouraged a certain amount of ownership, you'll, you'll try to steer people to private ownership, or 
or really what, of course, I'm trying to get to is based on your senses, how many charging stations do you need in public places to get to your goal? Are there any insights you take that on how many charging stations you need in shared multifamily parking spaces to get to the goals? That's kind of a mixed question. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm going to try to take it in pieces. So first to address the issue of free supply and challenges accessing infrastructure, that is a real issue. Um, the parking program I mentioned, we're providing charging for free. It's very heavily used. So from the city's perspective, we see a potential issue where we cannot facilitate the next EV buyer, the next user who might live in an apartment because they don't see infrastructure availability. So what the strategy does propose is that we would look at updating that program. So by surveying participants in the program, we're taking a step. But what other cities are doing, um, including City of Santa Monica, they're undertaking this now, but it's, it's making all that public charging infrastructure a paid service. So that's that's one piece. And I think the second part of your question was that it was, was it the proportion of multifamily that's appropriate? Well, um, this is an interesting question. What CalGreen currently requires for multifamily? So for multifamily, it's 3% of your total parking spaces have to be EV ready, meaning they're pre-wired. If it's a non-residential project, that's 6% of your spaces if you're above 200. Otherwise, it's some ratio between 1 to 10 spaces. So that's what CalGreen requires is EV ready. And in theory, I mean, I, you come in, you're just putting a charging unit on. Other cities have been looking at this question, and it gets its an interesting nexus of the equity and the affordability issue, but also increasing access to infrastructure because it is perceived as a potential increase in cost of construction to multifamily. But the uh, city of Fremont is one city that they do require that you pre-wire for 10% of your spots in multifamily and that each of those also get the charging unit installed. San Francisco, they're also requiring 10% of your spots be EV ready, but it's not requiring actual placement of the charging unit. And Oakland, their ratio is, is comparable, but it's a little scaled based on the type of multifamily development. Um, what staff there has shared is that the biggest opponents that came out when they passed this requirement were affordable housing developers. So those are, those are some of the ratios we're thinking about. Appreciate that very much. Um, another part of the multifamily discussed in the report is this notion of the, the charging station on the curb and Did you say that it has to be accessible to the public? I, I mean, I, I, I have another friend who owns an electric car who installed one of these in front of their house on the public right of way, not in the central city notably. And um, um, are they obligated to share that with anybody else who wants it? How does that work? Right now we don't have a policy guidance to permit them in the right-of-way. So to date, the city has received some applications. This would require an encroachment permit. Um, and uh, what 
happened is that the application was denied because there were questions of, of ownership and usage, electrical service. So what we've proposed in the policy is direction that the city would develop guidance to allow curbside charging infrastructure. And in the language we're working with, it's if we would permit in the right-of-way, the requirements would be that it is publicly accessible, that it's non-proprietary, so it can't be just a Tesla charger. It has to service all vehicle types. Um, and what we've also proposed is phasing in towards a pay-to-charge service because if it's in the right-of-way, we want to ensure there's turnover. There may be opportunities in the residential applications as well, so I think there's still some questions we're, we're looking at, but public access is, is really key if it's in the public right-of-way from the staff perspective. Appreciate that. Very helpful. I'll pretend I didn't say what I said about my friend. I don't know how that worked. Um, more questions and then I'll yield. Um, thank you for, I, I, I know we're all very happy about the Volkswagen investment. Do I, how, how much does, how, how much does the city, how, how do I say this? How much in get involvement does the city get in directing how those funds are invested? Is that largely driven by Volkswagen or is the city or a multi-jurisdictional group getting to say, you know, we want to do, you know, the equity thing in different neighborhoods or we want to concentrate in this thing or we want to do the electric avenue or how does that work? Yeah, so the investment is very highly regulated, and the whole process for how it's spent is spelled out in the court settlements that the US EPA, the Air Resources Board, Volkswagen, and others all signed to. So for California, how it works is it is Volkswagen's money. They created a subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary to implement this. It's Electrify America. They submitted an investment plan to Volkswagen based on their their business opportunities, their needs, because this, this piece of the settlement, it is an investment. It's not a penalty. So all of that to say CARB approved the plan and what they can spend it on for the first cycle. So that's the car share, the infrastructure, and others of initiatives. In terms of the city's role, um, we are really involved as a partner, and, and Electrify America has been a very good partner and very very much engaging the city for input. Um, we have also been collaborating very closely with other agencies, including SMUD, the county, the Air District, and, and others, Valley Vision and the SAC EV Association. And through that group, we participate in the Sacramento area PEV collaborative. We produced the infrastructure plan. SACOG also participates. And so through the whole process of the investment plan getting created and figuring out how to engage, it was a very multi-agency effort and will continue to be so. Um, we're currently at a point, though, where Electrify America is doing a lot of work to figure out what they want to do. And so we're waiting to help provide more input. Our role really is one as, as a partner and a convener. And, I mean, with the strategy, it's, it's laying out our goals for what we hope to achieve through their investment. Appreciate that. Last question. I appreciate Commissioner Kaufman's question about self-driving cars, and I'll say by way of a comment, I'm <coughs> not getting it like some of my commission colleagues. And I sense from your answer that there's a lot of things to be worked out. But I had one little minor question I thought of, which is to say th the zombie cars, how do they plug themselves in? 
That's, that's a great question. I mean, there are things like wireless or inductive charging, or there may be technologies in the future that facilitate that, but uh, a lot much remains to be seen there. Okay. Again, thank you for an excellent presentation on a very interesting issue. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFazzo. Commissioner Ogilvie? Um, I just have two questions sort of following up on Commissioner Kaufman's points about, you know, what the road, no pun intended, looks like 10 to 15 years from now and all of the traffic that comes through Sacramento. It looks like this plan is addressing a lot of, you know, the, the city resident needs and, and the incoming workers, but what about people just traveling through who need to charge? I mean, it could be a real opportunity point to look at these points along the freeways. I mean, and for retailers, you have a captive audience when you're charging your EV vehicle because you're there for 20 to 30 minutes, at least right now. So for retailers in this town, that could be a fantastic opportunity and something to explore. Um, it could also be a real pain for people living here with traffic and not being able to charge their own vehicles or just sort of you know, not being able to get into a parking lot or something because of this increased traffic from outside. Um, at that point, you kind of, it came up when talking about putting a charger in the right-of-way outside your home. Could you put one in your driveway and, you know, similar to Airbnb, like have your own little charging business and maybe the city, like they're doing now for Airbnb, takes, I think, 10% or 12% or something maybe. It's a revenue source and a way to meet some of the, the limited infrastructure demands. Um, on the multifamily front, is the city considering exceeding the, the Cal Green standards? So in the, in the plan, we've discussed this issue a lot, and so we've identified you know, a commitment to explore initiating how to incentivize or provide education to make it happen. We haven't recommended exceeding CalGreen standards in this draft. And then with some of the um, that money from Volkswagen, is there funding available for new or retrofit affordable housing developers so that they can provide more chargers? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's the $44 million that they're investing dedicated to Sacramento, and that is focused primarily on car share and more the programs and infrastructure to support it. However, in addition, there's also a separate pot of funding for infrastructure funding. So beyond that $44 million of Green City investment, they're also going to be putting chargers in throughout the larger region, including along the major highways in Sacramento. And so, yes, they are going to be looking to existing development, and they're looking at multifamily, uh, workplace, public parking lots, municipal lots, and there may be one other category. So they're going to be looking to get site access agreements. You know, from their perspective, you, they want utilization of the chargers. So there is a real benefit to go in where there's established uses and customer bases. Is there a place where developers can go to now to get more information and offer their site or... Yeah, we do have a web page on the city website that details a lot of the background on the investment, and we'll be posting updates there. One of the 
actions in the plan, an idea from staff and community development was to really help by hosting you know, open houses or information with developers. And we've discussed creating materials that could be provided in pre-application meetings. And we've already been in discussions trying to figure out what opportunities may be in the pipeline. So we think there is a real good opportunity there. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Woolsey. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Actually, some of my colleagues has already asked the question I have. And uh, one thing I do say that I like very much that how you tied the uh, lack of infrastructure <coughs> impact to the housing element. And, and no matter single family or multifamily dwelling, is with if somebody owns an EV and without a designated parking spot, it's extremely cumbersome given the lack of infrastructure. So, and I would admit to you all that I do drive an EV, so I'm very encouraged by the documents and good work, good work. thank you. And I yield. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. I'll make my comments brief. Excellent presentation and great and detailed report. Just a couple of comments, feedback. Um, and uh, great questions by my fellow commissioners. I echo the comments related to the autonomous vehicles. Uh, I appreciate the clarification as what has been currently defined. I would encourage staff to take a look. I know that Ford has recently made a, a major investment uh, in autonomous vehicles as a part of, I think it's the Lyft fleet. Um, and so what we're reading, what we're seeing is that that may be coming faster uh, at a faster pace. So ways to accommodate that would be great. Um, uh, looking at charging stations near light rail, I know that there's a reference in the report about trying to identify um, uh, multimodal opportunities for charging locations identified, but I think uh, a further explanation of how to do that will definitely help knock in the number as referenced by Commissioner LaFosso, uh, getting more vehicles off the street. So. Uh, I think that that would be good to, to emphasize at a little higher level. Um, uh, really, again, the equity conversation is, is a great one, and I appreciate bringing it to the forefront. Uh, and in terms of just the priority locations, I think that would be helpful in this strategy is, is identifying and aligning uh, some of the key corridors that we've talked about in some of the previous transportation studies and, and having some correlation between the the location strategy and what's what the city has identified as as the key transportation corridors that uh, um, in, in previous uh, plans have been prepared. Um, again, I um, really think it's this will be received well in November 28th. Great presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. Commissioner Pluckybaum. Uh, so. Um, uh, I, I agree with uh, everything all the other commissioners have said, but also um, I'd just like to uh, reiterate the percent of multifamily um, parking that comes forward. I'd like to see a, a percentage closer to 10, like what uh, Fremont and the other cities are doing. Um, uh, I'm not particularly um, excited about the idea of <clears throat> ad-based uh, charging stations. The cost of electric vehicle charging is already significantly lower than gas, roughly a third uh, per gallon equivalent. And um, I don't think that uh, we want to see a bunch of ads on our, our city streets to 
uh, subsidize some sort of program like that, but um, uh, more accessible uh, charging stations, um, I think, uh, would be great. And I think we can work through whatever the affordable housing um, issues are. You know, if, if the cost to install a, a commercial charging station isn't on the order of a few thousand dollars, and, and we're, we're requiring you know up to 10% of parking to be made. Uh, available to that, I think there's probably other ways that we can um, offset that expense for affordable housing projects. Thank you for for doing this work. It's a, it's a really fantastic report, and it's it's very exciting. Thank you, Commissioner Pluckybaum. Commissioner Koval. Well, one, I want to applaud you that to get a compliment like that from Ms. Commissioner Lafazo. <laughs> it's quite an achievement. Um, <laughs> I was just curious if you knew approximately what it uh, would cost to install uh, a charging station in an older single-family home that obviously is not pre-wired for it. Mm, that's a good question. I know that typically what we say when we are doing level twos and more of a non-residential application, like about 12000 if you account for all the wiring and the conduit, my understanding is for residential homes, you, you typically you don't even necessarily need a level to put in. I mean, you can do a slow charge as long as you've got a 240 volt socket to plug into. You can just do a slow trickle charge overnight, and that doesn't require any infrastructure improvement. So we don't have as good of data on the number of residential charging installations because because folks can can charge without actually pulling permits or putting in the hardware. Because I thought a few years back that the city of Sacramento had a, re, a mandate of well, some houses were built, you had to have a charging station in them, and then they took it away, if I'm not not mistaken. There are no manda current mandates in the city of Sacramento, is there? Yeah, my understanding is that we do not have any local requirements that exceed Cal Green. Um, I hadn't heard that we'd had a requirement in the past. So that's something I'll look at. Okay, thank you much. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Commissioner Bodipa member. One last comment. Uh, just uh, would like to, to make sure that as we're talking about the different charging technologies that we are currently aware of, that the strategy also allow flexibility for future types of charging uh, technology. Um, I'm hearing about the similar technology you see with cell phones where you can charge your cell phone by placing your phone on top. Basically, making sure that we're not investing in infrastructure that will, by the time it's in place is already archaic. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. Commissioner Fossa. I'll be quick, although uh, I really appreciate your obsolescence comment, Commissioner Bodepa-Memba, but I queued up because I uh, appreciate the digital advertising thinking of Commissioners Kaufman and Pluckabom, as well as their sort of, you know, trade-off analysis. But apropos to the application that you mentioned when you were responding to Commissioner Kaufman, how, how big is the Advertisement. Is it some kind of five by five thing on the charging thing, or is it some kind of you know five inch by five inch thing on the chart on the charging station, or is it some kind of you know six by two thing on the street? What, what's the size of it? Yeah, I, I think it would be closer to the six by two configuration, and nothing is final yet. Uh, what we've seen in terms of the proposals is, you know, the big kiosks facing more the pedestrian, pedestrian and non 
digital screen that would be facing the right-of-way. Um, these are issues we're still talking through with staff and community development, with, with our legal counsel as well, uh, because the city does not currently allow for advertising in the right-of-way. Appreciate all that, and I, uh, I third uh, Commissioners Kaufman's and Pluckabom's observations. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner LaFosso. Commissioner Lindsay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I just wanted to follow up on something that uh, Commissioner Ogilvie had mentioned about um, people passing through Sacramento and having um, charging stations. Um, we're quite a tourist draw here. So I was wondering if um, in the strategy, I don't know if I saw that, I don't remember seeing it, but that we require hotels to have charging stations for those coming to stay in our city and if they have electric vehicles and that's a, a novel idea we hadn't contemplated that I'll take note thank you and, and great presentation I think it's uh, it's imperative that we move forward with um, uh, cleaner burning vehicles um, and to reduce our carbon footprint especially with a lot of things that are going on now in the federal government so thank you very much thank you Commissioner Lindsay Commissioner Ogilvie? I'd like to echo my other commissioners' concerns about the advertising in the public right away, both you know the light and the light levels at night, but also noise, you know, can it can be pretty disruptive. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Commissioner Cole? Just to add some conversation. I, I've had to drive back and forth for meetings to Los Angeles area lately. And it just seems like all the places I stop along the way have charging stations, like Pea Soup Anderson's, Harris uh, um, Ranch. So I think they're already starting that way. So it's a good idea. Seems like it's working. And when you go there, there's cars parked at them. You know, they're being used. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Commissioner Pluckyball. I know you already know this, but uh, for my commissioner's benefit, there are two fast charging stations in the region, one at Smith headquarters and another one at Antelope and, uh, and Interstate 80. And those are the, um, like, uh, for example, on Highway 50, there is no uh, publicly available charging station from that SPUD station at 65th and Folsom. I think until you get to, like, Rancho Cordova. I actually got stranded there once. It sucked. Um, so, like, the, those are the opportunities, I think. It, those fast charging stations in particular, the dedicated um, uh, DC charging stations, they'll take you from zero to 80% charge in, like, 20 minutes. And that's that's an amount of time that folks can, you know, stop, uh, you know, charge your car and get going again without too much inconvenience. Um, so those are the kinds of things I think in the future it would be real great to see. Thanks again. Thank you, Commissioner Plucky Bomb. Commissioner Ogilvie? Um, to follow up on the question of cost, I think the the low level chargers are like three to four grand, and you said the tier two are about twelve. But I think the ones you just mentioned right now are like a hundred thousand dollars. And if I may add uh, context to the fast chargers, so SMA did also install a DC fast charger at Sacramento Valley Station. Uh, the agreement with EVgo for the curbside chargers would be for up to six high power chargers. So Typical DC fast charge is 50 kilowatts. These will be 150 kilowatts with 240 mile range in like 20 to 30 minutes for cars that can take it. Um, and your point of cost is really well noted. We had looked at what it would cost for the city to develop it, and 
it would be a lot more expensive for us. So EVgo has economies of scale, um, but still they're they're going to be investing significant capital to get that to happen. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvy. Thank you, everyone. Um, I just have a couple questions. Um, I noticed in the report um, it talked about that Sacramento was leading the way in promotions of EV cars and EV use, but in terms of people actually purchasing EV cars, is a big lag. Why is that? Yeah, well, it's a good question, and I think it's one we're still trying to understand. Uh, we know that Sacramento's rate of car purchases, it's in terms of a per capita rate, it's a little lower than the state averages. So we're not buying as many cars per person as other places. Um, could be a reflection of socioeconomic characteristics or, I mean, income is really, income and median household value are some of the top two indicators of your likelihood to get an EV. So I think that's a lot of our reason to emphasize other types of EV access through car share, through you know, barriers to infrastructure. So that's an issue we're still trying to get our heads around. And, you know, we talked about the, you know, the, the charging stations. And I know the big talk in urban planning now is about parking minimums and maximums. And especially for, you know, we're very short on affordable housing units. Wirings want to build two EV charging when they can't even have two regular parking space. I don't know if you should call it regular, but whatever. Two non-EV charging spaces can make or break a project. I don't know. I don't know how we calculate that in terms of the whole talk about parking minimums and reducing those and just having two spaces just just cuz uh, I, don't, I don't I don't know dude I don't know how to solve that I just thought that should be part of the conversation as well well um, in terms of requirements um, for the Cal Green standards the non-residential provision of an EV ready space only kicks into gear when you're providing certain number of spaces already and there's certain things governed by the code um, in central city where we often don't require minimum parking so we're not necessarily we're not proposing a change there one of the strategies we do identify that we'll explore how to incentivize chargers outside of the central city where they're more likely to provide parking so that's something we will continue to explore and I, you know, just it's sad that Volkswagen did what they did, but hopefully they they this this good is occurring from that. And I think the social equity piece that Commissioner Coffin talked about, and, you know, having the car sharing at the, the, the public housing units is a good thing. And you look at that map. Hopefully, this program could solve a lot of problems that we have, and obviously make the environment better. So, thank you for the work that you're doing. I see there's, a, there's another question from Vice Chair Lucian. A very quick question. Um, this dawned on me. Parking at electric vehicle stations that are out of order, it, it, would that be uh, uh, some sort of code or municipal violation worthy of a fine? That is a great question. So just to make sure I heard you correctly, is it for a station that's out of order? 
Is that what you said, or was it? Yes, so, where okay. there is a sign that basically says it's it's not functioning properly. For example, like in the city garage across yeah. the street. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So we have the authority from the California Vehicle Code to enforce for EV charging off-street. Until very recently, we could not do that on street, but the governor just signed new legislation so we can take a resolution and we're working with parking to look at what that would mean so we can get get everything in place locally so we can enforce on street. So we are having these discussions about what it means. The focus in the new legislation the governor passed is on enforcement for active electric vehicle charging only. What we know from experience is there may be somewhat of a challenge to identify when a vehicle is actively charging or not. Um, there's new cars. Some of them light up. Some of them, how would you know from the outside if it's actively charging or not? So there's still some questions. Uh, what we are focused on for the EVgo project, which will be on street, is a posted two-hour parking time limit and that's what you would be ticketed on for now and we're figuring out this the active charging piece and designating it for evs only um if you park in a garage and you're a non-ev in an ev space yes we could ticket you even if it's out of order i i would have to defer that question to parking folks maybe our legal attorney but i think that's my understanding yeah thank you thank you Seeing no other further commissioner comments or questions, thank you so much. The report is very helpful. I learned so much. Level one, level two, zero emissions, battery electric. I, it's a whole brave new world for us. So thank you for, for leading the way on this. Thank you very much. Before we move on, I just want to note there is, if there is any public comment, seeing none, I just want to make sure we follow the Brown Act. Um, We'll go to public comment, see no public comment. Any other member uh, items, questions, comments from commissioners? I see Commissioner LaFossa. Uh, I'll be quick given the hour. Um, the subject is the online development tracker. Um, I recently, this morning, took the time to look up a bunch of projects that my neighbors have been complaining about and uh, or with, that we've had history with. And um, I was under the impression that all of the entries had plans and approval documents and such, and the two that I looked at um, didn't have any approval documents attached to them, so one could really get a sense of what the projects were supposed to look like. Um, one of them, the contact person, was Mr. Seitz, so I talked to him this evening, and he told me that that actually is what it's supposed to be, and apparently the city's working on that. Um, and I promised him I'd follow up on the two ones I discovered. But given how frequently the online development tracker comes up as sort of the go-to answer every time public notice issues came up, um, since I'm recently using it and discovered it's got bugs in it, I just thought I'd bring that to everybody's attention. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner LaFossa. Uh, Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Very quickly, just wanted to let folks know, the last three days, um, the Urban Land Institute has had uh, a number of uh, land use professionals in town here to evaluate uh, three corridors uh, that come, have come in front of us for quite 
a few projects, um, the Del Paso corridor, um, Franklin uh, Boulevard, and Stockton Boulevard, and, and they're working with the city with city staff to identify economic development opportunities and development opportunities for those three corridors. Uh, the process started this week and will end in June of next year with a presentation. Um, and I just would like to ask if staff, uh, as it moves along, uh, if, if the results of that could come back to the commission, it would be very valuable because I think the recommendations uh, will help us in some of our decision making. Uh, and just to provide some context, a previous similar study was done as it relates to uh, the rail yards, I believe, in, and the arena development. And so a lot of what we've seen in front of us has come from that output. So again, I would encourage uh, fellow commissioners, uh, if there's opportunities for us to get involved, to do so. And I would encourage staff to bring those end results to us. I think it'd be very enlightening. Thank you so much, Co Commissioner Wadipa member. Thank you for your leadership on the commission, but also leadership in the Urban Land Institute. Great organization. I know they've done studies on the Broadway corridor. They also are looking at the riverfront as well. So thank you so much. And with that, seeing no other further commissioner comments and questions, we are adjourned. <laughs>